Hi, my name is Connie, otherwise known as the Mom Cave. I'm a trained mental health coach, and I want to start today's podcast with a trigger warning. Stassi and I will be talking about mental health, including topics like PTSD, domestic violence, disordered eating, grief, and suicide. If you notice emotions that are overwhelming at any point, please take some time to reach out for support. Stasi will be posting resources in Canada, the UK, and the US in the description. Hey everyone, welcome back to my channel. My name is Stasi. Thank you so much for being here today. We're going to do something completely different today. And I'm really excited to talk about this podcast because I think this is these are this is a podcast that really needs to be talked about. And today what we're going to be talking about is mental health and all the different aspects of how to notice that there may be a problem or you're seeing somebody struggle. And I could not think of a better uh, simmer to be here. The mom cave. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Saucy. It's good to be back. And I'm really looking forward to talking about uh, mental health and this, this very important topic today. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here because that was actually one of the first things I ever knew about you, that you were um, like, a, like a mental health coach. And I, I always thought that would be so cool if I could ever get you on, like if I could get you on here just to talk about mental health, because I think it's so important that we need to end the stigma behind mental health. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I think especially now in the last three years since 2000, the uh, statistics of um, mental health declining and things like thoughts of suicide, disorder, eating, domestic violence, all of, the, all of the things that we're going to talk about today have increased quite a bit. And so um, I, if I can start, I'd like to talk a little bit about just what a mental health coach is, because not many people know about that. Yeah, that was actually gonna be my my first question to you is why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it's like to be a mental health coach? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, I started this journey close to 20 years ago now, which is a little crazy to me that it's been that long, but time flies when you're having fun, right? Um, as as a, a counselor, a lay counselor, meaning somebody who's not really trained, you know, Kind of trained, but uh, trained enough to sit with people in in their pain for a community uh, project that the uh, faith community I was in at the time um, had had been doing. And I, I noticed just kind of sitting in that space with the people, this transition from um, pain and grief and just challenges in mental health to working to hope and comfort and this transformation. It was like, wow. Um, so I went ahead and, and did something um, late thirties and went to graduate school, got myself a degree in, um, it's specializing in counseling and grief and resilience. And when I was in, in my master's program, I was in a class and a coach came in and, you know, people come in and present different things just to expand your horizons. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. I never thought about that um, before, but it kind of mm -hmm. stuck with me. So after I graduated, I actually was a clinical chaplain. And for those who don't know what that is, is it's a person in hospitals in a clinical setting who's trained to sit with people in grief. It's not about religion. It's about somebody who's there as a support to counsel and guide in some very hard places. 
And after graduation, I got into hospice as a grief counselor. I focused because of my early experiences with working with people who and watching them transform. I focused my attention in my training on grief and resilience. And that's important now as a coach, because that's exactly what I do. And I worked in hospice for about 10 years as a grief counselor, um, as a director and uh, working with people. And I realized that my the way I, I counsel was to support and help people in, in their feelings, in their healing. And, and then when, when they would get to the point where they were reinvesting mm-hmm. or shifting their grief to kind of reliving their life, it's like this whole blank slate would open up and it was just wonderful, dirty work to get in with people. And I loved it. And I realized that's coaching. Mm-hmm. So um, I got out of hospice after about 10 years, got myself trained as a mental health coach and have been working as a mental health coach for, I don't know, five years now, I think it is. And what that is, when a mental health coach does and how it's different from a therapist is a coach is not there to to diagnose. We're not there to treat. Um, We are, a, a coach is there to sit back and observe and to create space. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trained to create space for for healing, for um, reflection, to ask powerful questions and to help someone get to know themselves better and then to start imagining what life can look like in the process of that sitting with emotions is that emotions and these experiences are what help us uh, help us and drive us to change and to grow. And so a big part of that is acceptance and helping people work on that. And so I, I really am big on um, cognitive behavioral approaches and acceptance therapy approaches. I don't like to use the word therapy, but that theory. And what that creates is this wonderful kind of mix or cocktail, if you will, of support. And that's what a coach does. So I sit with people who will come to me and say, I'm anxious. And we're going to talk about what that anxiety is coming from. Like mm-hmm. anxiety, anxiety, anger, fear, all of those are secondary emotions or experiences. And there's something else in there. And so as a mental health coach, which is different from a therapist, a different from a life coach is that I can come in and I can sit with the anxiety. I have the knowledge of, of mental health enough to help ask some questions, to help refer when I need to. So that's what I do as a mental health coach. And I love it. It's uh, somebody asked me recently, what's your favorite job you ever did? And this is it. Um, I have recently uh, started kind of my own practice mm-hmm. in coaching, in addition to working part-time for a company. And I have decided to niche my coaching on content creators. Because as a content creator, I realized there's so much. Now we're going we're gonna to talk about that, that today, but there's so much that content creators don't um, don't realize until you get into that. You get in front of the screen, you start to really get into this process. And um, so, so I'm niching on helping content creators with their own mental health to help prevent bur- and manage burnout and. Um, all the things a wonderful coach can do. So that's what I do. That's my TED talk on being a coach. <laughs> no, that's awesome. The mom came and I, and I appreciate that. And thank you for educating as well, because I honestly didn't know what a mental health coach was versus like a therapist or, um, 
other types of resources. It's really, it's really cool to know that there are multiple different types um, of resources. And thank you for sharing your story. Um, I would really like to jump right in. Um, so originally, I was going to have this come out on Blue Monday, which is uh, something for a lot of people that are, live in Canada or the really cold uh, parts in the world. Um, it is supposed to be the saddest day of the year. Now, it was a marketing ploy back in 2005 from a PR company in the UK trying to sell vacations, like buy this vacation because you're really sad at this time and things will get better. But that also being said, um, so I live in Canada. I'm very open of, I'm from Ontario. Uh, today is the second day this year we've seen sun. Um, it has been really hard Uh this uh, winter for a lot of people, we're not seeing um, the sun, seasonal depression. Um, also what's coming into this as well, it's not, it could be weather, it's you're, you're back to work after the holidays, the first rounds of credit card bills are now due after Christmas. You're kind of just feeling really blue. I can speak for myself. I did not have the best week last week. I was just really in a in a sad place. Uh, enough to my when my coworkers asked me if I was okay, and I just I didn't want to lie and say, yeah, I'm fine. I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm just not having a great day. I really miss the sun. I really need some vitamin D. I'm just really tired. I'm really burnt out. Um, so which leads me to talk about my first question is a lot of us do suffer um, from seasonal depression. And I would love to hear, um, you know, how to help it is the best way to describe it. Yeah, it's a great description from a from your own personal experience of uh, what what we refer to as seasonal affective disorder, mm-hmm. and that disorder tends or uh, seasonal depression tends to begin around the fall and end in the spring months, and tends to happen every year. Um, you, you can experience things like being you're feeling sad. You just feel sad most days. You lose interest in activities, and these are all really symptoms of um, some type of depressive experience or disorder, and maybe you're sleeping too much. Some people sleep a lot. And when the, there's a couple things that goes on there, there's the, the disorder or the depression, but there's also our own biology that's designed to sleep when it's dark and be awake when it's light, unless you're Mm -hmm. a content creator, then it's opposite, but we'll talk about that another day. Um, so sleeping too much, too little. So there's all types of different um, experiences that someone will have. Mm-hmm. One of one of the things we I want to normalize with that is 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 you said something. You said that it was used as a marketing play for vacations, as if oh you'll you'll feel better. It's okay. It's no big deal. Yeah. Um. And 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 I think that's 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 part of the stigma of mental health overall. Mm-hmm. Is this idea that there's this quick fix? Just go on vacation, you'll be better. Somebody with seasonal affective disorder could have some other uh, comorbidities or could have some other um, mental health challenges in their life. It could trigger grief. It could trigger many things if your mood is low. So low mood as a coach is how we refer to depression when when a client has it. Definitely want to see a doctor if if it becomes overwhelming. And I, I would argue if you're experiencing this, call your primary physician, let them know you're experiencing this, let them help you. Mm-hmm. And even if it's seasonal, we we don't have to suffer. We don't have 
to suffer. And that's the message I want to get through with things like seasonal affective disorder. And it's, it's in Canada. It's it, where I live. It's been raining quite a bit. I'm in California. Um, but where I live in the central Valley and we'll probably experience this soon in February is mm -hmm. fog. And okay. we'll have, yeah, we have something called Thule fog and it comes from the ground up because we're an ag area mm -hmm. and it's very thick and you can't see, you can barely see in front of your car when it's thick. There's like zero, sometimes negative visit visibility. And there are times when you, we have a rainy season where we won't see the sun for weeks. Yeah. And so the, our bodies will respond to that and react to that. And uh, things like taking vitamin D, mm -hmm. um, the, there are the lamps, what are they called? Um, that you can get for, for seasonal affective disorder. I think I've, um, I've definitely seen them online. Definitely vitamin D is a huge, like they'll like anybody, like they'll be like, make sure to take your vitamin D in the winter. It, it It's so hard to explain to somebody who like always lives in the sun to wake up and it's dark. You go to work, it's dark. You go home, it's night because the sun has already, if there was a sun that day, it had already yeah. set at 4.30. You're just potentially living in darkness. It can, like, it, as you were saying, it can really take a hold of you. Cause like, I will say I sleep a lot in the mm -hmm. winter. I'm a huge nap person because my brain associates, well, it's dark outside. Right. I'm going to nap or it's dark outside. And it's because like, we also get really frigid temperatures. So we will deal with both ends of it. So being like, for an example, so like today it's so it's sunny. You can see, you can see the sun on my face from, from the window. That's like right there, but it's minus 15 outside. So it's kind of like, it's so sunny. You want to be outside, but it's so frigidly cold that it's mm -hmm. not actually warm but it's just, I think it's just more of sometimes visualizing the sun and knowing that it's there it has already lifted my mood 10 times better mm -hmm. um than last week just knowing that like there's going to be sun and I know this week there's going to be more snowstorms but like living for those Sundays is like what we live for the it absolutely the the light therapy lamps that's what I was looking for my brain couldn't find this morning <laughs> um I, those are super helpful. And, and I, I will, I want to add a little something to yeah. this experience or seasonal affective disorder is sometimes people can experience that throughout the year. If you made a good point, if you're working a lot or you're in the house, I mean, I work from home. I work from home now for, for several years mm -hmm. and I, truth be told, I'll go days. I have a beautiful window here, but I don't always go outside because I, I get so focused and I'm like, I get up, I get focused. I have my list of things to do. And I go, 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 go until it's done. And I realize, oh my God, I haven't been outside in like three days. What's going on? Um, and the light therapy lamps are very helpful and you could, they're all price ranges. Just go on, um, you know, online, anywhere you can find them. Um, you likely will find relief with those. Um, having them. It's kind of a proven effective treatment for seasonal affective disorder and highly recommend, again, if this is something that is affecting your life, that's mm -hmm. kind of the key. How, how is it affecting your life? Are you functioning? The main question with anything we're going to talk about today, any, any of these mental health experiences is how's your quality of life? Mm -hmm. How is it affecting your life? How are you functioning day to day on a level of say zero to 10? 
or let's break it down. I like to use a, a zero to five. Zero being you're just in bed, you're not doing anything. Five being you're functioning at your highest vibration, right? If you're if you're functioning below, like in the mid to low range, it's time to call your physician and let your physician know, hey, I'm experiencing that and I need help. And yeah. and that's it's really important because again, you don't have to suffer. So you you said to me, like you sleep a lot and you experience this every year. Many mm -hmm. people do, I do too. Um, the other thing that I want to, if I can mention about yeah. many forms of depressive disorders is that they can be cyclical. They can be very cyclical. And again, I, I don't want to go into detail because that's out of my scope. But what I do know is there are different depressive disorders where you'll go through cycles of your mm -hmm. feeling good. I mean, you know, we talk about bipolar where it's very extreme, but even mild forms of it are situational. Stress can do that as well. So any change, any change in your life, even good change can cause those, those types of experience. So I did want to add that, that mm -hmm. anytime you're experiencing anything and you're, you're um, functioning at kind of that mid to kind of lower level in your vibrations or your life, mm -hmm. um, it's okay to reach out. It's okay to call your doctor and say, Hey, these are my, this is what I'm experiencing. What should I do? I think that's really, really good advice. Um, I do have one question I'd like to add. Um, yeah. it, it can be about uh, seasonal depression. Um, you touched upon it, um, working from home, uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, a lot of us did transition from working from home. A lot of people loved it. A lot of people didn't. Um, I'm back in the office every day. My fiance is working from home every day. Um, I know people suffer from working from home. You like, it's like eat, sleep, repeat, and mm -hmm. you just kind of feel like you're getting trapped and the walls are just moving in on you. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if this is in the wheelhouse of uh, this question, but like, what advice could you give to somebody who just feels like they're trapped in the four walls and they need to leave? Great question, Stasi. And yes, it's very much my wheelhouse, very much what uh, I've been working with clients on uh, for a very long time now. Um, now, me personally, I am an extreme introvert. Mm -hmm. Honestly, probably to the point where leaving my house is something I have to force myself to do at times, like I just shared. But for many, that's not the case. And um, if if I, it's kind of kind of a little bit of, it's a pretty beefy answer. So I'd like to share yeah. Let's back up to the pandemic, March of 2000. I remember I was coaching at the mm -hmm. time. And I remember my clients just like, what the is going on? Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God, all of a sudden they get up, we're getting up. Now I was already working from home. So, you know, but I get it because I've, I've been here now several times. You're used to getting up. So let's, let's think about time as liquid. Yeah. Okay, time's fluid, right. It's finite, but it's fluid. Okay. And when you have liquid, you need a container. Okay. So people's time containers were kind of put into places, school, kids go to school, mm -hmm. go to work. Um, then we go home. Right. So your containers were very um, separate. Mm -hmm. And then what happens and also let's add another layer to that for for many work is an out is an outlet or an escape mm -hmm. so for many people were able to be out of their home or escaping 
their own challenges, their their own grief, uh, just kind of things within themselves. They were able to you not use work, but work for them was a was a an outlet for them. And we know you work full time; it occupies what ninety percent mm-hmm. of our lives. So then, all of a sudden, here's this pandemic, and everything shuts down. And a there's a pandemic, and people are like, well, what's going on? We're talking about this. What is happening? So people are all reeling about that. We're not going to talk about the social unrest. I mean, that's a whole other layer. Mm-hmm. People are now forced to take their time and put it all in one container. Everybody's liquid in one container and that container was overflowing. Mm-hmm. So people were going home and it was very disorienting for many because now you have let's say it's a, it's a partnered relationship. You have your partner. Let's say you have children, you have your children, you mm-hmm. have your pets, you're at home. Uh, people are all trying to do school and work. And usually if, if it's a, you know, um, traditional relationship, the, the female parent or the um, mother mm-hmm. is the one responsible for schooling the kids and working. Um, that was, that's statistically kind of how many families would, um, structure so then you you just you have now this conflict kind of rising and rising and rising Mm -hmm. and there's no outlet or no escape or no other way to contain time and so the anxiety was building and people's lives were disrupted and any time our lives are disrupted our it's called we referred to as our assumptive world. So the world we're used to mm-hmm. every day, the things we don't realize. So if something changes in your assumptive world, you don't realize it until it changes because it's so subtle. But once it changes, damn, do you realize it? And so people's assumptive world was fractured in many, many areas and many layers. And then what that causes is any type of <clears throat> internal challenges, uh, grief or mental health challenges, has have to be uh come to the surface there's nowhere to escape from them Mm -hmm. you have all these additional stressors and then let's add another layer on there of uh homes where domestic violence was either subtly there or pending or present yeah so you have that increasing as well because of the stress and the grief and that's an excuse but uh so it was like this cocktail for this explosion of mental health challenges. And through the last three years, what we saw as mental health professionals and experienced in our own lives, my own, I'm happy to share my story recently, what we experienced in our own lives are just the statistics of, um, and experiences of things like escape through, through anyone's life, domestic violence increasing, eating disorders increasing, alcoholism increasing, or any type of substance uh, abuse. I mean, so so I wanted to just color my answer with that because we are in a different time when it comes to working from home. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's... Now adjusting to working from home is a, is the next piece. Go ahead. No, I was going to say like, it's, it's completely different. Like thinking about it, like 
I think another aspect of it is, well, what's next? Like, because everybody mm-hmm. thought the pandemic was going to be done in like three months. Like, well, we're going to send you home for two weeks. Like, everybody make bread. You're good to go. We'll come back to real life. And then that didn't happen. And then they moved the goalpost. And then you, we would get to that point and then they would move the goalpost again. I understand uh, the COVID me- uh, measures were different in the US. They were very different in Canada and they were very different in the UK. I would say Canada and the UK had a very kind of similar, right? Um, we were, we were locked down for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Like the first lockdown, because we, we had three total um, here in Canada. I was, I should specifically say in Ontario, we had three because that's where most of the COVID cases were in the country was um, in a span of where I live in Ontario um, mm-hmm. that we were continuously being locked down. Um, and then, you would just be sitting being like, okay, well, I can, I can, I can go to the grocery store once a week and I can do all this stuff, but I can't do X, Y, and Z. And for a lot of people, like that's blowing off steam was like going to the movie theater, uh, going to sports games, going to the mall. Uh, It was a huge, like, like just like fun things to do. Then that stopped and you couldn't do that. And then you were trapped inside looking at your four walls as they cave in with your partner not even talking about the financial aspect of people losing their jobs, making not their full wages uh, in Canada, living on CERB. Uh, so for anyone who is not Canadian listening to this, so CERB was a $2,000 payment that we would get every month from the government. It was a form of EI insurance. Um, $2,000 uh, per person does not spread far here. I will tell you that that is not, that is less than what I make per month. And $2,000, you're looking at like everything was going up, your home, so your hydro is high, your power is high, everything's high, your water's high because you're continuously being home, you're not at work. You had to get better internet because you were working from home. These are just, it was just like money. So like, it it was, it was like literally the cocktail of a perfect storm of just Um, like waiting to explode. And mm -hmm. it, it does break my heart for, you know. Some people really, it just completely destroyed their lives. And then other people, they didn't even notice there was a pandemic. It was, it was just, it was so crazy to see both sides of the fence. But anyways, I feel like I'm digressing. The mom you're fine. <laughs> I, I, thank you for sharing that. It, I think, you know, the, the points you're making are really valid from a personal level. Like all of yeah. these things were happening all at once. It wasn't just one thing. It wasn't, oh, I'm working from home. It was, I'm working from home and all of this other crap around me is just swirling. What is going on? Things were, things same here in the, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And um, I, what, what I want to say is that stress breaks down any filters or um, kind of the things that we rely on our resources to, to moderate our emotions. And when somebody's already, uh, emotion, emotionally irregulated Mm -hmm. as a kind of baseline, people really started to struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, they're, they're, what I noticed though, and as a coach or as a mental health support through that time, was then people had to reevaluate their values. So I'd like to add a positive mm-hmm. that's happened to many, myself included, which is why I'm sitting in front of you today, right? Mm-hmm. As a YouTuber and gamer and content creator, right? Is people got stripped of everything. And this is why I focused what I did on grief. This is the place, mm-hmm. the positive potential of loss. 
because that's what it was. It's been loss after loss. And and one thing I, I would, I'd add is people were losing loved ones mm-hmm. to COVID. They were dying. Yeah. They weren't able to be in the hospital. And so there was grief on top of that. Um, when, when we're stripped of everything and as we go through that grief, there comes a place where we, we step into and there's cracks of light and there's like this, I, I, I think of it, there's two analogies. I think of it when I think of grief Mm -hmm. is first and foremost, let's say uh, something happens to your home in a disaster, like a tornado or something hits it and it's destroyed and you walk up to it and it's totally destroyed. And you look at your kitchen and you see what used to be there. And then things within that, you start picking through the rubble and there are things that you get to keep and things that you don't. And the things that you get to keep maybe didn't have meaning. So it's a broken teacup that was grandma's that really means everything now because you've lost everything, right? Mm -hmm. Second analogy is a mosaic like a stained glass window or a mosaic art. And that's, you know, if you, you think about how it starts as it starts with broken glass. And if we think of where that glass often comes from is broken vessels. So these containers of time mm-hmm. that we had were now broken vessels or broken glass. And so people had to take those shards of glass of what was their lives that will never be their lives again. Mm-hmm. And we had to start picking through that and picking out the things or the values and really considering what do we value in our lives? And then from that, there was like opening up this whole other space of potential, like, okay, well now what, now what is the question that I love people to ask me now what, because that's like, okay, let's get our hands dirty, roll up my sleeves. Let's get busy in coaching. Um, And so people started to go hiking and they started to learn new skills. They started YouTube channels me they started just the things were like yeah right they started these things that started painting um started being industrious with started businesses that nobody had thought of before and from all of that came this kind of blossoming of many into these Mm -hmm. new people Mm -hmm. and that's the potential that's the beauty of coaching what I love and that's the hope and I want to hone in on that because there is there can be hope in, in, in these very, very grief inducing, shattering experiences. Um, and, and if you'd like, I can talk about a few tips that I've learned from working from home and adjusting from being in an office. Yes, please. Please, please share. Before I do that, just, uh, add anything that I shared so far, any questions? Uh, no, I, I, I totally agree. Like I, I was, sitting and talking to my fiance this week that um it's like we were supposed to get married in 2021 because we couldn't because of the pandemic and then we were supposed to get married last year but then we made a decision because omicron was really bad we weren't confident in seeing uh where our province was going to take the safety measures so we moved it to 2023 and looking back when i was first engaged back in 2019 to where i am today i'm a completely different person COVID has completely changed but i think it's changed me for the better because it made me sit back and reassess like what was actually really important to me versus what actually wasn't that important like i remember um like when i was like at the beginning of like getting married i was like like everybody has to look perfect i need to be instagram ready and stuff like that but now i'm just like i don't care show up in jeans just, just show up <laughs> but that because it, it's it's completely shifted my values of what I thought was important because back then I thought it was the Instagram photo was the most important to me because at that point I was 
fresh out of, you know, I was getting, I was budding my social media career. I thought I wanted to be an influencer. I wanted to live that Pinterest Instagram life because I thought that's like what you did to show people like, well, look how successful I am, which we will Mm -hmm. get into later in this podcast where now I'm, I'm extremely way more level-headed um, than where I was when I was 26 and I'll be and I'll be 30 this year and I'm getting married this year which is really nice and it's fine it's really nice and it's excited to think about it but like to be honest with you I can feel like I every year I get to this point and the rug gets ripped out from under my feet I still feel that way because this would be the third time of something just the rug getting ripped out from under my feet I know this is very different from what we were talking about but it's it, it what you're talking about perspective like I feel like a lot of us have changed from uh from before the pandemic to where we are today I feel like a lot of us have changed in a different way like we're different people now we definitely are I'm grabbing a piece of paper here because so I uh I'm a I have to write down a thought before I lose it um okay you made a really really good point Stassi. you just said something that I think summarizes all of what we've talked about so far mm-hmm. and it's that you you had to sit back and reconsider your um your values yes um sorry my fan just turned on <laughs> that's okay <laughs> they're freezing <laughs> why is that a thing okay sorry that's okay um anyways so you had to sit back and you had to to reevaluate your values mm-hmm. that's what we have to do when our our world our assumptive world is taken from us is gone mm-hmm. that can happen at at, um, at many different transitions and life transitions, life transition coach, if, you, if I were to say what kind of my sub niche is, is that. And that's any time we don't have, we walk into that place or that kitchen and everything's been, I can't bake cookies in it anymore because it's gone. Mm-hmm. But there are things that I value and I start, I have to, I'm forced just to realize what's really important. We were forced to realize what's really important. And some did. For some, that created more turmoil internally. And so their locus or center of control was pushed outward. And and that showed up in things like anger and and hate. Mm -hmm. For some, it showed up in things like domestic violence and, again, in, in substance use. Because we didn't want to deal with inside. Or we couldn't. And... And for some, it was hard, but we were able to sit back and say, what do I truly value? And I'm really excited to hear that you're uh, getting married. You'll get there. My son and his wife, same thing. They were engaged. He proposed to her and then the pandemic hit and they had to postpone their wedding. They were going to do something in at the coast. And uh, what they ended up doing is her family owns a home mm-hmm. in Morro Bay here on the central coast, close to where I live. And we did a really intimate, it was still kind of locked down, but we, we meet, we met the, the, uh, the maximum number of people and it was beautiful. So we had to reevaluate. They had to reevaluate what's truly important to them. Mm-hmm. What's really important to them is just these, these core people at our wedding. Uh, it was great. I got to officiate. That was lovely. And, um, it, it was beautiful. And I, I want to, I want to say that that for many has been the experience for many it hasn't mm-hmm. and for many it has for many it they're they're coming out of the same 
damn, life's pretty beautiful because all of that stuff that I thought was important before, mm -hmm. I really isn't important. And now I have this open air, this open space. My container has increased. Mm -hmm. So the container gets bigger. It gets more focused. It gets more intentional. Okay. And we're able to fill that container of our time with things now that we value and things that we didn't know we could do or that we learned to do that we didn't know we love. And that's been the positive potential in all of this. I, I absolutely love that. Um, I can speak for myself. I became a content creator um, throughout the pandemic and I would never go, I would never go back looking back because I just celebrated two years of doing being saucy. And it's so nice. weird to think, feel weird that like saucy is only two years old. It's become such a huge aspect of my life. Even moving forward, it will be a big aspect of my life, but I would have never had a chance to do that without the pandemic. So Absolutely. I can, I can confidently say like, if it wasn't for Sims, I don't know if I could have gotten through the pandemic as easily as, as I was able to go through just because I had that outlet of being creative. I had that way to just shut my brain off and just turn off all the negativity outside and just play a game that brought me, brought me back to my childhood of just having fun. And that was stuff I was really looking like I had to do because it was so negative outside. And then yeah. being part of this Instagram community, which I've talked openly about is so welcoming. It mm -hmm. was just, it was so, it was so nice. So I, you know, I, so at, when I was 50, I was 50 years old and I, I had started playing the Sims for the same reason. And first of all, let me back up before I talk about me. Uh, congratulations on your award. I was so excited. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, Well-deserved. I, I, same thing. I, I've been the mom cave now for two and a half years and I never in a million years thought I'd be here today. And I am who I am today because two and a half years ago, or uh, three years ago now on my 50th birthday, I had been playing the Sims because of me my mental health had been declining for, it was before the pandemic. Um, but I needed an outlet. And so I started watching the Sims on YouTube for randomly. I don't believe it's random. The universe, I believe, kind of put that in my path. My daughter almost said, hey, just buy the game. I'm like, oh, hell, okay. So I did. Saw the 100 Baby Challenge because that's how I started playing. Mm -hmm. And um, wanted to tell the story of my 100 Baby Challenge on Facebook to a group. And the rest is history. And through all of this, I have learned so much about myself mm -hmm. as a content creator, just as a person. And I, I, I absolutely, it's more than a hobby because it has transformed who I am. Mm -hmm. And that happened for many being stripped away of everything is I need something else. Um, and so, you know, there, it hasn't been butterflies and rainbows. I'll talk more about that later, but I, I think for many, that's been the case. I am so grateful, so grateful for the content creation community has expanded so much for me with, you know, YouTube and now Instagram and and I just hit six, 600 on my story. So I'm really excited on that. That's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and, and just it, the numbers aren't as important as just what that represents, right? For me, it's what it represents. It represents this community that keeps growing and expanding and, and um, improving in my own world is, you know, I, I opt for authentic and, and healthy relationships. And um, I it, being a content creator really can be a positive thing. I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later. Mm -hmm. If I can back up to working from home, I would like yes. to just 
quickly talk around yes. the trail a little bit on what I've learned. I'll speak from my own experience, what I've learned and I've talked about before um, in in different con in different avenues about how do we adjust to working from home. So the challenge of working from home is we're used to home, right? Go to work and then we come home and home is is home and and we kind of just relax and do what you know whatever home things we do. Work is work. We can be focused and and do the thing. But then we come home and it's like, well, I got to do the thing, but I also feel relaxed. I want to relax. Or do I sleep? Do I clean the kitchen? Do I uh, do the laundry? Do I? The kids are screaming. The the dog's barking. The but I have a, a budget meeting and I need to meet with one of the people I'm managing and it's just a lot. So, so what I would recommend, and this is how I would support clients who were mm -hmm. trying to figure this out is we, we talk about what opportunities do they have? So like, first of all, what, what are the challenges? So listing, what are the top five challenges sitting with that and saying, what are the top five things? What's the hardest thing for me in working from home? What's the hardest emotion or the hardest feeling for me? And name the emotion. So it might be anxiety. Why are you anxious? Mm -hmm. I'm sitting with that. When are you anxious? We can't say why, when are you? Well, I'm anxious when I have to sit down, I have a budget meeting and I'm sitting in my living room and there's just clutter everywhere, which, I mean, we live in houses and that happens. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about that. What's one thing you can change in your environment? Because it sounds like it's environmental, right? It sounds like something environmental. So what can you change? And so we'd start imagining what that could look like. And some of the, many times it would come to a, a dedicated space in your home. If you can, a room, if you can't, uh, a corner, if you can't, a table. Um, and, and one of the solutions for many is like, well, I live in a small apartment. I don't have an extra space. Mm -hmm. I don't have anywhere in my, um, anywhere I can go. I live in a studio. You can always compartmentalize work. And that's what I want to hone in. Is it's important to have the ability to shut the door, walk away from your, your job, turn off your computer mm -hmm. um, and, and walk away. And for those who don't have a, you know, aren't gifted with an extra room in their home, one of the doors being an empty nester, we have extra rooms and you fill them up so kids, kids can't come back. And um, is, is, so get a box, like a, one of those, I don't know, file boxes, mm -hmm. big enough if you can to put your computer in, like many of us are on laptops. If you can't, it's fine. If it's a desktop, there's a solution to that. And set your time, set your time, your container of time is the same. I'm at work. I'm, I'm in a different environment, but the container looks different, but it's still a work container. And what I would do is I would carve out time on my calendar, my work calendar for lunch, mm -hmm. for breaks, if I could. And when work was over, I'd shut it down and walk out. And it was a little challenging in here because this is also my creative space, but I would make sure I would do that. For, for those who don't, it's like, well, I work at my kitchen table. Like, okay, well, let's talk about environment. What's one thing you can do that you feel like you can do? So let's, uh, SMART goals, are they, um, are they possible even? Is what's one thing you can do this week to improve? What would improve your environment? And what's one thing you do to make that happen? Well. I need to clear off my table. I'm thinking of a client before. I need to clear off my table. Okay. What if you took 15 minutes every day this week and worked on one pile and put it somewhere, even if it's in a box, just get a container and throw stuff in the box and deal with it later, but just to clear your space. The focus is on the space, not the things, right? Mm -hmm. 
So clearing off the space. And then the next thing is have, have a like a file box or something where you can take your work papers and your notebooks and your pens and anything that represents work, your phone, your work phone, everything. Put it in that file box at the end of the day and close it, take that file box and put it away. And with your, in your computer and put it away. Pack it up, put it away, walk away from it. Go take a walk if you can, go take a shower if you can. For me, a hot shower just snaps me out of life uh, in the moment and puts me back in the present. Mm -hmm. um, take some deep breaths, do some meditation, do some yoga, jog, whatever your, your thing is, your outlet is, do that thing. And then, then you just separated from, even though you're in the same space, you just separated from the work container to the home container. And the more you do that, the more you're going to compartmentalize those two parts of your life in that same space in your brain. And your brain is going to adjust and it's going to become your new normal. That process worked for so many people, so many people that the anxiety levels they were feeling about work and home went down. And if people would say, well, you know, my kids are schooling in the background, still sit down and talk about what's one thing that would improve this, that mm -hmm. you can do this week or work on over the next few weeks for 15 minutes at a time. If you're doing it all at once is overwhelming. So that's what, what working with a coach can do is kind of help you imagine and make a plan to improve your life, to work from home. And through that, you start to just kind of have this baseline of working from home. And then you expand that out based on what your new normal is. Things like new organizational strategies. Um, how do I, um, how do I, when do I step away from this space? Maybe go to a second space, sit out in the backyard if the weather's nice and work, mm -hmm. you know, however you can do that. It expands from there, but you, you just re, uh, you just repaired your foundation. You don't repair your foundation. You just created a new foundation for your life. I, I love that. That is such amazing advice. As I, I, I worked from home for a good portion of the pandemic and I loved it. I, I, cause I got to work on my couch. I got to watch right. TV. I got to have my laptop. I got to, I got to be like, okay, well, I'm done for today because there's nothing more I could do. I could like log on to The Sims for like 20, 30 minutes because my my job allowed me to do that where I know others are not as fortunate that they're they're key monitored. They're they're constantly being checked in on and it can get a little like anxious of just constantly always feel like you're monitored in your own home. Of yeah. just any and then you just kind of feel like you just want to leave. But I definitely do I definitely will pass on um yoga, meditation. Those are two things I got into throughout the pandemic. And I love meditation, just helping that finding that mindfulness and clearing your mind can make a really big difference, especially if you're having a really bad day or, or you have a hundred things you have to do and you're trying to sort it and try to make sure everything gets done, or you're putting too much effort into one thing, but not into this. And you feel like, so like my theory of being an adult is a, uh, a bed, a, and you're trying to put a sheet, a fitted sheet on the bed and you have family, career, friends, spouse. And for some, it, it can never get all four corners on by yourself. Mm -hmm. There's always one corner that's missing or one yeah. corner you're having a struggling and you need someone's help to get there. That's always um, how I felt of like being an adult. I, I can, I can always get the three corners, but I can never get that fourth corner. And it rotates all the time. Sometimes I feel like a, a terrible friend because I'm spending too much time doing Sims and 
like ignoring my real life friends, my job, I don't have the best job. I've talked openly and how much I dislike my job, mm-hmm. but trying to get, continue to get paid or family, maybe like we don't really see eye to eye on a lot of things. Right. So it's just kind of, and then spouse are just trying to spend time with everybody and talk to everybody and make sure everyone feels loved and not feeling neglected can be very difficult as you get older because you have more responsibilities. Absolutely. Oh yes. I, you're preaching to the choir over here and I get it, especially as a content creator. I, mm-hmm. I have to weave that in because I, I'll speak for my own because we, we have these, these big brain ideas and we want to do them all. And boy, I was on it hours at like 18 hours and I could do it while I was in between clients or, you know, mm-hmm. slow because before it, the pandemic hit, it was slow. Then I was a manager. That's a whole conversation for another day before I left that company. Um, but I, I think it, for me, it's like, I want to do this and, and I'm very hyper-focused. That's yeah. I have um, recently been diagnosed would make sense with ADHD and the type that makes you very hyper-focused and obsessive on things at times. And so that was me with content creation because I would just get sucked into the idea and the story mm-hmm. and go hours and hours, hours at the neglect of my life, my real life, my real people. And even though I'm an empty, it's just me and my husband and, and two very needy older dogs that are driving me crazy. That's a whole other conversation. Um, they, they, you know, our lives can get neglected, like even just, just getting up in the morning and it's, it's content creation can do that, but also work can do that, right? We can mm-hmm. focus ourselves back into work again and things like getting up and just taking a shower, getting ready as you would to leave the day, to leave the house. Like if you were to need to leave the house by eight, Mm-hmm. do the same things you would do before you left the house. The only difference is you're going to plop down in whatever place you're doing your, your work, whether it's work or content creation. And I can tell you, even this morning, like I got, I don't know, three, four hours sleep last night, hardly any sleep at all. I couldn't sleep again. My brain's just popping off with the story that I'm writing with somebody right now. My husband was snoring. My dog was whining. I was <laughs> this close, this close to just doing something. Um, I was losing my mind. Mm-hmm. And finally at like 3.30, I fell asleep and I woke up at 7.30. So, you know, here I am even today getting up, showering, doing my hair, putting on what little makeup I, I don't wear a lot of makeup and just getting dressed for my day mm-hmm. helped me to focus on, okay, now I just sit down and, and have this conversation instead of feeling like you get up from the bed, then you go to your chair and you're just kind of still in your pajamas or whatever. And it's like, you never really start your life for the day. So it's really important when we're at home and working, I love working from home. Like I dread ever having to, to not work from home. And when I quit my last job, which we'll talk about if uh, my, if you'd like my journey this last year with my own mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I quit my full-time job because of that. And I was terrified. I was like, God, I don't want to, I'm building my own business. And if I have to go to work, I don't want to go work outside the home. I love working from home. Fortunately, the universe smiled upon me and I found another lovely job working from home part-time. It's great. Um, while I build my business and that, but that's, what's important mm-hmm. for some, they don't like working from home and their companies never went back to the office for some 
they love working from home. And the idea of going back in the office is anxiety producing. Mm -hmm. So it's this, this adjust, readjust, you you adjust, you start to get comfortable, your new normal, then you got to change again. And that's kind of been the ebb and flow. And, and so having, having the flexibility and having a, um, a change mindset, one that's flexible and, and willing to accept what's happening and accept the emotions within what's happening. And then redirecting and readjusting is going to serve you more throughout your life. And this is, you know, grandma mom cave here, the grandma cave um, with my, my older lady wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. That is going to serve you more in your life than anything else is having a, a, a change mindset versus a fixed mindset of this is the way I do things. And it's, and I still want to do these things, even though I can't do these things this way change is inevitable and important. So letting yourself be flexible is important as well. I think that was that's a big rabbit trail. <laughs> I, I, Hey, I love, but that, that's the whole point. I want to be able to sit and being able to talk about things like, uh, so if it's okay with you, I'd love to ask you a question. Yeah. Um, you talked about being recently diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was diagnosed when I was nine and they put me on Ritalin and it made me a zombie. And I stopped taking it when I turned 18 because I had the legal right to say, I don't want to take this because it, I didn't like the person that I was being. And I have been medication free ever since. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are like, how do you have ADHD? Like you are so like well-organized. That's how I have to live my life. Um, something me and my partner, sometimes we, in the beginning of our relationship that we would really fight about is I live very schedule-based. I schedule out my day. From the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, um, I don't like free flowing plans. Nothing makes me more uncomfortable when a plan comes out of nowhere. I, I plan out my weeks, weeks in advance, just to make sure that I can do everything I want to do in my day. That's how it keeps me organized. But the reason I'm asking this, the reason I want to ask you this is a lot of people I'm talking to now are now getting diagnosed um, in their adulthood of what this is like. I've always, I've known most, I've known for 20 years of my life that I've had this and how to like, how to handle it. How does it feel then as an adult to know you have this? And does it make sense of growing up when you felt these ways in certain situations? Does that make sense? It does. And I would love to share what I've learned this year about myself because it's okay. I'd really love to share kind of what this year has been like for me um, as a, as a human right and and here's the thing here's the thing back to content creation is is we're we're on we're entertainers Mm -hmm. so i said we're entertainers we're just like any other entertainer everywhere we're just not as well known we're in front of people sometimes in front of a lot of people either our face or our image or our thoughts or our creativity is are in front of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people yeah okay um and so that can create this feeling of i have to maintain to your point of this image that I have it all together. Well, I don't, I haven't had it all together this year. In fact, I've been a hot ass mess this year and it started last fall um, where my work started to change and the stress at work started to change. And there were some things in my personal life and friendships that kind of started to, to, to break apart and surprise me in unfortunate ways. Um, and, and then things that work interpersonally with direct reports. I mean, it was just this whole cocktail for my own mental health to deteriorate quickly. And I was experiencing where it got to the point to 
uh, back up to June, where I was so, um, I, I mean, I couldn't create content. I couldn't think of a story. I mean, I think of a story and I do little bits in here, but I was so overwhelmed in, in my brain. Like my brain was a literal firestorm and my body was following suit. And I got to the point where I would get up in the morning and sit in front of my work computer. And at first it was, I could function till about noon. And I used to start my day about seven. And I could function till about noon and then it would be a little bit of a push. And then I could, you know, kind of wind down around one or two was fine. And then noon started to be 11 and 11 started to be 10 and 10 started to be nine. And it got to the point where I would sit in front of my computer and my brain would literally shut off in 30 minutes and I couldn't function. Mm -hmm. And I knew at that point, I had deteriorated so much in my mental health and it wasn't just work. It was everything. And my mental health was, was back where it was, you know, four years ago when I started playing games because it, it was kind of the same scenario. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where I was like, what is wrong with me? And I've had therapy and I've kind of talked to people about it and oh, it's situational and what do you need to do about it? But now there's something else going on. So I reached out to my doctor. I finally reached out to my doctor and she is this fabulous, bossy Russian woman. And I love her. And I say that she's Russian because I just want to give the visual of how she talks to me. <laughs> it's just very direct. And I love everything about her, about her culture and just about her. Yeah. But I, I reached out to her and I said, I'm not functioning. I'm not functioning. I want med. I need medication. I knew already because I had already taken mental health days and then it was, they let me off for two weeks and then I came back and I was okay for about a week, not even half a week. And then it started happening again. Um, and I realized I, okay, I, I knew I was quitting in that two weeks. I realized I was going to quit, just start my own practice and do something else. I didn't know what, but I, I knew I was going to do something else and really wanted to, to focus on content creation more as well within whatever I do. I wanted to marry the two yeah. and I didn't know. How. So I knew that was my plan anyways, but so I came back and I, I, it was even worse when I came back. And so I reached out to my doctor, it was on June 30th and I reached out to her and I said, I, I, I can't function any medication. And she said, absolutely not. I'm not giving you medication. So, and, and please, I want to say there's nothing wrong with medication for mental health. For some disorders, it's necessary. So if your doctor wants to give you medication, please know there's nothing, please take it. Yes. Um, and work with them. So anyway, so I, I was like, well, I don't know what else to do. And she said, well, what do you do? And I told her, I'm a mental health, co health coach manager. I manage, you know, these people. Um, this is what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. She said, okay, I'm taking you out of work for two months. And I was like, wait, what would do what? Fortunately, I work for a company where at the time they paid hundred percent of your salary for too much. I mean, very, very fortunate position for this. So I want to say, I, I realize how privileged I am to have this experience. This is not going to be this way for everybody, but I, I'm very privileged to have had this. Um, she took me out on mental health leave for two months. And when I came back, I knew I couldn't come back. And in that time, I started therapy with mm -hmm. my therapist now, who is Angela. Angela, shout out to you. I'm going to send you this link because you are a ah, chef's kiss. She's fabulous. She's such a gift. This whole thing has been such a gift from the universe and so healing. Um, but this has been happening for the last year. I haven't been well the last year at all. 
but I haven't really told anybody. I've told like a handful of people. I've been very mentally unwell um, as far as struggling. So in the process of all of this and, and my, my new therapist, we started talking about my experience and started saying, God, I, I don't know, do I have ADHD? And she's almost assessed you. So she did. And she said, yeah, you do. And we talked about medication, no medication, but what we're doing is we're managing it without medication. I have a fidget ring, um, mm-hmm. just things that work for me, for my brain, because what she said is, is I'm very creative and she has it too. And she doesn't want, she would hate to see that creativity affected with medication. Again, if you need to take medication, please take it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that all said, what is it like at 53 to now be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress from adverse childhood experiences? Um, and severe panic and anxiety disorder and ADHD. That's, those are my diagnoses. That's not who I am. It's what I experience. It's what I have. Who I am is somebody who experiences those things and is managing it with hope through support and care and honesty and leaning into it instead of masking, which I've done my whole life. So what that's been like is kind of mixed. Mm-hmm. So I'm 53. I'm a grandma. I'm a, I'm a mom of two adult kids and, you know, doing this masking thing for years, like my whole life. And I realize that now. And so first and foremost, there's a grief for me. There's a, what should have cut. I'm working through this with my therapist being very transparent with you. Mm-hmm. And that is looking back on my life and thinking I'm so much healthier now. And looking back going, damn, what, that's all wasted time. And just that grief and anger and frustration, that's all coming up, but that's going to happen when you make a big change is you have to grieve your past and let it go. Even if it's a, if, if, even if it's a um, less than savory past. And so I've been grieving my past and then picking from that grief. Like we talked about picking up those, those pieces of values and bringing them with me into this new person that I'm becoming very quickly, this healthier person, this person that's more aware and more authentically who I am and learning how to be that person. And so at 53 saying, well, I, I'm, I ain't dead yet, <laughs> right? Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. My great grandma lived to be 90. Who knows? I think I had another great grandma in Italy who lived to be 102 or something. I don't know. I don't know. I, I could be 30 or 30 year old neighbor almost lost his life because he had COVID with comorbidities. You never know. Mm-hmm. So what I've learned in all of this to answer your question, what is it like? Is it's, it's freeing because now I know there's not, it's, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not defective. I'm not broken. I am a person who has experienced things, who has brain chemistry mm-hmm. that makes them neurodivergent, makes them think differently, makes their brain process differently, makes their dopamine uh, levels different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me understand why I obsess on things, why I, I can't do things, why this, you know, the laundry in the corner over here to the left of me is still sitting there, why that happens. So I'm starting to learn about myself more because it's never too late. I wish I would have been diagnosed earlier in life. Don't get me wrong. I could have avoided so much but, and I don't use that word often, but if it weren't for my past, I wouldn't be who I am today. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'd be sitting in front of you today. I don't know that I would be in mental health had I not started back in 2006 
as a counselor because of my own adverse experiences. I've been dealing with, uh, dealing, no, I've been, I have worked through and integrated mm-hmm. my adverse childhood experiences and my post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress that I have, I can experience. So I've been working through that for years now. The turning point for me was admitting that that was an adverse experience and that I needed help. And that was really hard. I remember that day in the therapist's office, that makes me want to cry just thinking about it, but I'm glad I did mm-hmm. because it's something that happened to me throughout my life and not something that is wrong with me. Having ADHD is something that I have and experience, but it's not who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, having PTSD is the result of something that I had no control over. Having uh, anxiety and panic disorder is a reaction or a normal brain response to all of that. That's what I've learned about myself. And that's what I want to share with people openly to say, all of these things do not have to define you. Mm -hmm. And there's hope. Like you can, you can you can have hope that there's you've nobody is so far down that you don't have hope. And one of my favorite quotes I've ever heard is sometimes people have to so fall so far down. They have nowhere else to look, but up. Mm -hmm. And if that's you, it's okay. Look up and it might be dark, but there's there's one thing about light is light will always pierce the dark. And even the tiniest bit of light will pierce the, the deepest dark. So, um, that's kind of my story just in this last year and kind of how I've transformed through this process of a very, very challenging year. A lot of good things, you know, I have a grandson, he turned one, he's so cute and he loves his granny. I can't wait till he said granny. Yes, I'm granny. Thank you, granny P. I love it. (laughs) I, I love that mom cave. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing your experiences and not letting it define you, but letting it just know that it's a part of you and that you can overcome it and you can work to get, you can work with therapists or even just on yourself and just being able to move forward. And like you said, like you have grandparents that lived into their nineties. If that's the same case, you still have half your life left and to yeah. not let the rest of the rest of half of your life to not be defined by what has happened beforehand. I think that's really important to talk a lot about mental health, which if it's okay with you, I'd like to take it on to the next segment, if that's okay. Um, I really love to talk to, we're going to group together a couple. We're going to group together bipolar, Mm -hmm. um, anxiety, um, and we're going to talk about depression. We're also going to talk about postpartum depression. Um, I would like to like for bipolar, I really would love to end the stigma of parent like my like my parents are in their 60s. As soon as I'll be like, oh yeah, like my boss will scream at me one second and then they're fine the next. And the first thing everyone always kind of says is, Well, are they bipolar? And I'm like, no. They're just they're just screaming at me because they're upset. It doesn't mean you can be upset and then happy. It doesn't make you bipolar. It's just you're a human with emotions. And I really kind of want to end that stigma behind what people think by bipolar is because a lot of people think what it is, it's like the movie Split. Um, that's like if that's not bipolar, that's like multiple personality disorder. 
that's different than being bipolar uh the mom cave uh, if you could please elaborate yeah thank you that is so such a great I'm I'm really really glad that we're going to talk about this and the first thing I want to say first thing I want to say is that we have and this is part of the stigma we have to stop we have to stop as a society global society using mental health diagnoses as derogatory labels. Mm -hmm. We absolutely have to stop doing that. So you have someone who has dysregulated emotions, maybe he has bipolar, who knows? Maybe he has borderline personality, who knows? You know what? That's not for us on the outside. That's for for, for them to, to figure out or get treated for or not. But what we have to start doing is saying, we have this person who, who has this negative behavior. So we're going to slap a label on them that they're bipolar as if, as if that's a, that's a, a slur. Mm-hmm. And it's not, there yeah. are people who have bipolar and bipolar is a, is this imbalance in your brain. It's not something that you can, uh, can, it's not something you did to cause it. And when, when people who have bipolar or who, you know, don't, uh, don't have a lot of background in mental health here bipolar. It's like, it's easy for me to slap on this guy who's, you know, happy one minute and being a raging asshole. The next is like, Oh, he's bipolar. And what that says is that's negative. And everyone who has bipolar is a raging asshole. So I'm going to slap on this negative connotation to Hmm. the diagnosis of bipolar, the same with OCD that and and I've been guilty my family we have this joke but in actuality many of us have you know I part of my diagnosis is very mild obsessive compulsive disorder just mm-hmm. because we like things a certain way we say oh I have OCD have you been diagnosed with OCD because if you haven't been diagnosed with OCD don't say you have OCD because maybe you don't mm-hmm. and so that brings me to this point of self-diagnosis and other diagnosis um, first of all, other diagnosis of looking at someone and labeling them with a clinical diagnosis that only a licensed trained clinician who is very well versed in the, I think we're in DSM five by now, I don't know, maybe six, who knows, that's not part of my world, um, can diagnose someone through a very rigorous process. Yeah. And if, if that's not you, then please don't say that someone else has a diagnosis that that's probably my biggest pet peeve. My biggest pet peeve is that, I mean, I, I really, really refrain from doing that even it with clients because it's out of my scope. And unless you're licensed to do that and trained to, to assess for that, mm-hmm. it's out of your scope End of discussion. So I said what I said. And the second piece is self-diagnosis. It's so easy. I can go and I'm guilty of this, guilty, mm-hmm. especially somebody who has some training in in um, disorders. I'm guilty of diagnosing myself. I'm mental health professionals. We're the worst. I mean, we're, we, we have everything under the sun, you know, um, <clears throat> because we're like, okay, we have all of these things. Well, a lot of the behaviors or many of the behaviors, most of the behaviors, if I go to Google and I Google bipolar disorder, or mm-hmm. I go Google borderline personality disorder or any other uh, DSM disorder. Yeah. And I read even PTSD and I read through all of the, um, all of the symptoms. A lot of those are actual, just normal human experiences in adversity 
Mm -hmm. right? What, what differentiates that is that it's, it's exemplified or it's, it's bigger. It's like, it's amplified mm -hmm. with that person. It's uh, life altering. It's more extreme. So I might experience, I, you, if I walk down the hall, if I walk down the hall and the, the, um, and this is my ADHD brain and the, anything is off just a nano inch, just a teeny tiny little bit. I'm going to see it. Like mm -hmm. I don't need a level to hang things because I can visually see things when I'm creating and I'm coloring, I can visually see things. And when I do like things have to be straight and perfect. It doesn't mean that I have OCD per se. I have obsessive tendencies, but I don't have OCD per se. Mm -hmm. And um, somebody with OCD, it might be that or something else, but it's incredibly more amplified, right? And so the self-diagnosis, we had to be very careful. Google is not a physician. That said, if you want to know what's going on and you, you're Googling, like, what are the symptoms of bipolar disorder? What are the symptoms of, symptoms of by, um, borderline personality or um, any of these other disorders uh, and post-traumatic stress or postpartum depression, any of them, depression in general, and you read the symptoms, that's great. It's okay to educate yourself, but then take that concern, mm -hmm. note what it is you recognize in yourself, why, when, um, your clinicians are going to want to know specifics about like, what, when, when does this happen with you? What do you notice? When is it, how does it affect your life? Just sit there and brainstorm that and then reach out to your physician and get help and get a clinician to die, to talk to you about it. Now, I thought I had a, another certain disorder. I was sure of it. This is just reason. And so I told my therapist, I, I think I'm this. And she was like, okay. She did all did the assessment. She saw, you're not that. Stop saying that. I'm like, okay, thanks. So I, I the self-diagnosis and other diagnosis can be very, um, very mm -hmm. damaging to others. I feel like that's really common with anxiety, depression, especially in my age group. So I'll, I'll be 30 this year. Um, mostly everyone I talk to, um, they will say like, oh, I suffer from anxiety or I, I suffer from depression, but they've never actually been fully diagnosed. Um, they just kind of feel like they're sad mm -hmm. all the time. And I always say, I'm like, D have you been diagnosed have you like what steps are you doing to know that is the case am I approaching the situation correctly by having that level of skepticism because unless a doctor is diagnosed like what if it's just like a deficiency in vitamin d or a deficiency in vitamin a or some form of deficiency and it's actually not these like anxiety or depression because I really want to and the fact that I feel like a lot, like, especially like the generations that are older than me feel like our generation, we, that's all that's what we say. We just, we have anxiety and depression. And I really just want to end that stigmatism that it's, everybody can have it no matter what age you're at. But I also want to make sure that I am asking or I'm saying it the right way. So I don't sound like I discounting how you're feeling. I just want to make sure that if they have anxiety that they're taking the proper steps to manage it or depression instead of it just, I read it, uh, a wiki how page and I clearly have depression. 
That's a, that's a great, great. Thank you uh, for bringing that up. Like how do we support people um, and how do we support ourselves? So I, I want to separate anxiety yeah. and depression yeah. as separate emotions mm-hmm. as well as, so I'm going to take two, two categories, separate emotions and experiences. And that's what I'm going to talk about. And then I want to talk about anxiety disorder mm-hmm. and depression as a clinical diagnosis. And yeah. I put that back with our, our, um, category of things like DSM kind of diagnoses. So as a diagnosis, if somebody's experienced anxiety, it's usually something along the lines of chronic anxiety disorder. Like again, how often, how frequent, at what level, how is it affecting your life? Those are all the questions that a clinician is going to ask before um, diagnosing with a disorder that is required more clinical care. Okay. So I want to say that as for depression is the same is depression is kind of this container of, well, maybe it's grief. Maybe it's, uh, again, as a coach, we refer to it as low mood. So let's take the clinical out of it. Somebody is saying, I feel depressed. It's very valid. They feel depressed. It doesn't mean that they have like a chronic depression, but they could have a situational depression. Mm -hmm. And that probably is, those two are are the two things I would say, it's not really a diagnosis that somebody's not self-diagnosing. Yeah, as much as saying what they're experiencing. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about um, anxiety. That is very much in my wheelhouse as a mental health coach. It's probably, uh, I would say, 99.999, if not 100% of the clients that I have worked with over the over the years. That's the main first thing that we're dealing with is managing their anxiety. You do not have to have an a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder to experience anxiety. Most people experience it, especially uh, in different age groups at different levels for different reasons. So if somebody is coming to you and saying, I think I have anxiety, I, I might suggest asking them, tell me what that feels like for you. Instead, versus kind of defer, defaulting to, well, you, you need to get that diagnosed or you don't have it. Well, they do have something because they're experiencing these things. Mm-hmm. And the best way we can support someone is just to sit back and be curious. That's why I became a coach and not a therapist is because I love being curious. So if you came to me and you said, Hey, coach Connie, um, I, I have anxiety. I'd say, well, let's talk about that. Tell me what you mean. What does that feel like when you say I have anxiety? Give me it. Tell me what, what does that look like for you? Where do you mm-hmm. feel it in your body? Um, and most often, so if we think about default emotions, right, or um, they're, they're more surface emotions that have more to do underneath. Yeah. So anxiety, fear, and quote unquote depression, which is probably lumping in multiple things like anxiety, sadness, inability to, to sleep. So all of these things lumped into one. There's something else going on below the surface. And the best way we can support someone is if they come to us and they say, I'm having anxiety, it means something else is going on. Um, Or if they come to us and they're angry. So anger is a default emotion as well. It's something where we recognize and can feel versus all of the other things that are probably behind it. Mm -hmm. As a coach, what I would do as a mental health support, what I would do is we'd sit with that feeling of anxiety. We would just let it be. And one of the things I I can't stress enough is if we're supporting people who are having mental health experiences, whether it's something that needs to be diagnosed, not something needs, everything in between, 
sitting and being curious and letting that person tell, just, just talk, just create space versus fix. We cannot fix people's mental health for them. We cannot fix the situation because what that does, and oftentimes I'll be challenging to anyone listening, is when we do that, when we offer a solution immediately, it's because of our own anxiety and what they're sharing. Mm-hmm. because sitting in that space with them to hear more about why they feel that way first of all can touch into our own pain and mm-hmm. also we don't know what to do what do I do you don't do anything you know what you do is you sit and you listen and you ask questions and you ask you know questions like tell me what that feels like for you if they can't they're just if that's overwhelming it's okay you could say how can I best support you with what you're experiencing right now as a coach probably my biggest power question that I ask every single, usually new client that kind of comes and usually they'll unload their experience with me. The question I ask them is in everything you've shared in everything you share, what is the hardest thing for you right now? And helping them identify kind of what's at the core of what's coming up for them is important. Now, as a, as a friend, what, what you have to remember as a friend, as a loved one, as a, as a partner, as family, Mm-hmm. we cannot be their counselors that we're not their therapists. I'm not even, I tell my family, I'm not your therapist. You can ask me advice and I'll tell you what I think, but I'm not going to be your therapist because you're too close to the situation you're inside. So if we think of circles of support, um, think of a, an inner circle and that inner circle is yourself and probably a handful of other people. And those are people closest to you and they're going to share that energy with you. They're going to share that experience with you. You're going to be very close to it because your mental health experience or their mental health experience is probably affecting their lives too. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. kind of the shared experience. Outside of that is a circle of support around the inner circle. And that's people like me. That's therapists, doctors, clergy, uh, professionals who are not inside the circle, who do who have no stake in the situation, completely and totally um, neutral to the situation because you can't really maneuver difficult challenges with somebody in a, in a, um, when you're in it, because Mm -hmm. you're in the kind of murky water with them. Now you can support them in the process. And then outside of that is for that person's experiencing, um, their anxiety or their mental health challenges is another circle. And those are other friends and family, people they love, but just, just, just can't, they, they need to keep a couple layers away right now for whatever reason, it could be triggering. It could be, um, they just don't understand me. Maybe they, they don't, they're not helpful. Maybe you come and share something it's shut down or it's just not helping the situation. And then outside of that circle is everybody else. And what I want to say to somebody, if they're listening Mm -hmm. from the perspective, who's of somebody who's experiencing grief, who's experiencing, uh, just a difficult time right now, or just ever over the course of your life, it's okay to compartmentalize people. It's okay to keep people out of your inner circle and push them all the way out to the outskirts. Mm-hmm. I don't care who they are. I don't care if they birthed you. I don't care if you, if you birthed them. It's a little bit harder if they're a kid. But if, if if kick them out if you need to, if they're triggering, if they're harmful to your mental health, kick them out to the outskirts. It doesn't make you bad. doesn't make them bad. It's just right now for you, mm-hmm. you need to do what you need to do. For those who are in the inner circle, the best thing that we can do is sit in their pain with them. I I think that's really really good advice. Um, I I will speak. I I feel always really guilty saying the next sentence out loud. 
Um, I don't really suffer from anxiety. Um, I have, I have anxiety traits when I get nervous, but I mean, everyone has like, we get, like, when we get nervous, we get anxious. Um, A lot of people in my inner circle do have anxiety and they will come to me to try to talk to me about it. Um, And I'm probably like the worst person to talk to about it because I'm a fixer. You're telling me the problem. I'm going to try to help you fix your problem so it doesn't happen again. Cause that's how I can't like my behavior. I feel sad. I feel sad because I did X, Y, and Z. Okay. I'm never going to do X, Y, and Z again. Awesome. I've solved the problem. I, this, this will not make me sad. What's for dinner. That's kind of how my, my mind has always worked where being as an adult and seeing that and now knowing that like I say to my friends and my family uh, I am not a mental health expert I am not a licensed therapist I'm a social media manager who's a failed chef and I am not here to I cannot give you advice I can only advise to you to go speak to a professional who can help in the situation and it kills me to say that that sentence out loud because I it it kills me to watch them suffer but I'm so scared that I'm going to say the wrong thing that could set them over the edge so I I just immediately run away to ensure that I don't say the wrong thing if that makes sense it makes sense and what I'm hearing you say is that it's, it's less about you being a fixer mm-hmm. and more about you fearing the unfixable. Yeah. And it sounds like from what you've shared is that your response is a defense mechanism for yourself. Yeah. Because you're used to, or you have so far in your life, been able to compartmentalize challenges to the point where, okay, I have a solution. I can go. Well, for many, there's not a solution. Yeah. And when somebody's coming to you, they're not coming to you because they need a therapist. They're not coming to you because they need or us because they they need um, a licensed anybody. Mm-hmm. They're coming to you because they trust you and they love you and they they need a friend. Yeah. And friends are not there to fix. Friends are there to listen. And you what you said at the end is the the nail on the head. I'm afraid I will say the wrong thing and make it worse Mm -hmm. and that my friend is almost always the reason why we will shy away from sitting Mm -hmm. in pain because we're afraid we'll say the wrong thing so if I might offer a reframe on yes thought is our role as a friend is to say absolutely not a thing is to say nothing. Mm-hmm. And if we do say something, it's a question. And a question along the lines, or it's it's a it's saying, oh my God, that sucks. Sometimes we just need to hear somebody say, can I say the F word? Of course you can. <laughs> Fabulous. Sometimes we just need someone to validate. That's really fucked up. Mm-hmm. That happened. What does that feel like? Yeah. And, and, and asking them that and saying, oh my God, what has this been like for you? Tell me, stay curious and open and just let them talk. 
You don't have to say anything. And that need to fix is very, is, has nothing to do with the other person. Mm-mm. It has to do with the receiver of the information. You said that you have, you don't experience anxiety, but you experience anxiousness. And I would say you do experience anxiety because we all do. Mm-hmm. For you, your coping mechanism has been, and it works for you. And it's, it's wonderful. You found a coping mechanism that says, if I can defer that, divert that energy to focus mm-hmm. and I can focus on a solution and there's one to be had, I'm going to lean into that solution. I'm going to fix the problem. I'm going to move on what's for dinner. Yeah. I also want to say, and I don't want to make assumptions about anybody, you or anybody, but I'm just going to say from my own experience now mm-hmm. at 53. Yeah. Right. Um, in my late 20s, as far as significant losses, I had not experienced any yet. As far as I experienced other things, so don't get me wrong. I, yeah. That's a other conversation. Um, as you live your life, eventually we are all, every one of us, 100% of us is going to experience grief. 100% of us is going to experience grief. And that's going to be a loss of something or someone. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a major life change. It's going to be something like getting married. There's going to be grief when you get married. I just want to warn you that. And, and oh, yeah. it's just because your life is changing. So we all will experience those emotions. Mm-hmm. And for some, it manifests in depression. That's what they can connect it to. So they go to Google and say, oh, I must be depressed. Or they, they, they're feeling that grief for something um, or stress over something and their anxiety, anxiety is probably the, the most common emotion in grief, especially in early grief, because of what's going on in our brains. We can do a podcast on that another time. Um, and so we'll lump it into that. So if somebody's coming to you and saying, I think I have anxiety, that's not what they're saying to you, Stasi. Mm-hmm. They're saying to you is I have these overwhelming emotions. And I just need to, I just need to, to say it. And we want to create space back to, to destigmatizing mental health mm-hmm. space for you to, for them to say more. And even if all you can squeak out is say more, just say, say more, let them share what they're experiencing because it's not because they think they have anxiety. It's because something else in their life is going on. And then mm-hmm. as you sit with them and you talk to them, instead of using your words, fixing, yeah. instead of giving them a solution because that's what we feel. Okay. You, you gave me this really uncomfortable space here. Here's, let me fix that. Mm-hmm. We can say to them, what do you feel you need right now? What, or let's say they do come to you and they're saying, gosh, I'm not eating. I'm not sleeping. And it's affecting their life. I'm, uh, I I'm having panic attacks and all of these things. You're like, well, this actually is like physically manifesting in ways that is altering their life day-to-day life. Uh, I haven't showered in a week, all of these things. Then those are the red flags to say, you know, may I make a suggestion instead of saying you need to, or you should, we, we need to stop shooting on people and ourselves. Um, and you, you can say, we can say, Mm -hmm. um, may I make a suggestion and ask a question or may I ask a question, make a suggestion. And then we get their permission to say, have you considered reaching out to a doctor or somebody just it's it sounds like what you're experiencing is really affecting your life and I'm worried about you 
It's okay to say that. And then it's being vulnerable back to them of how their experience is affecting you. Not in a way where they have to fix it or own it, but in a way that says, I see you. Because mm-hmm. if somebody's coming to us as a friend, they need to be seen. We need to let them know that we see them. We need to let them know that this, this is a safe space. Um, and then if, if they say, well, what do you think I should do? That's your cue. That's your cue to say, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a failed chef. Is that what you say? Yeah. I'm a social media manager. That's a failed chef. (laughs) Yeah. Great. Um, and to say, to say, but I, I I don't know. Maybe say, say, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but let's, let's figure this out together. I think that's actually really good advice. And I'm going to take that moving forward. I'm not just saying that just to, to say this, to say that I said it, I, it is true. I get uncomfortable because I don't know what to say because I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I, I was always kind of raised as you'll figure it out. I was raised very independently at, at an early age. I was left to do problem solving skills pretty mm-hmm. early on. So I've just always been used to be like, okay, well, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Goodbye. The end. But I understand that's not the case for everybody. And just sometimes just being more of a listen, it can go a lot longer than saying, well, if you feel this way, just don't do that. Because it it goes, there's more and it, it will kind of lead me to talk a little bit more about eating disorders, which we will get there. But we do have to start wrapping up because I know you do have to leave very shortly so we're gonna we're i got gonna, about 45 minutes so we're good 45 minutes okay well perfect so was there any we want to talk about we talked a little about anxiety i'd like to talk a little bit more about depression now and i'd like to not only just talk about depression but postpartum depression which affects a lot of women um in our world and i feel like they don't really talk about it so uh the mom cave the floor is yours. I'm going to speak from the perspective of, um, of a person who experienced severe postpartum depression after my son. So my son is 29. He'll be 30 uh, in August. So this was a minute ago. It was um, 1993. Thank you very much. Because 19- I'm also born in 1993 and exactly. I was also born in August. So <laughs> oh, Lord, I'm old enough to be your mom. Anyways, I, that's okay. I got the name for it. And I'm, I'm mom and to everybody. Um, so I I experienced postpartum. I didn't know what it was. I was 23 when I had him. I was mm-hmm. uh, a month. I had only been 24 a month when I married. Mm-hmm. I was pregnant with my daughter. She was born in 1990. And um, then my son was born three years later. Mm-hmm. So in the span of getting out of high school, I was quickly married. Um, I did a little junior college, but not much. I was a very tumultuous person at the time for different reasons. Um, we got married very young. I had children very young. I was 23 when this happened. I had my son. Um, and... I started experiencing things that made me think I'm going to use the term crazy. Mm -hmm. I literally thought to myself, oh my God, I'm going crazy because the thoughts that would pop into my head that I never acted on, fortunately, were terrifying things that were, um, 
literal visual, almost like a scene was playing out. I would, I wouldn't black out, but I would kind of check out and the scene would play out of me doing something to one of my children. Mm-hmm. And it was terrifying. Like, where the fuck did that come from? Mm-hmm. Um, I was severely depressed. I will use that word. I, I, was, I couldn't get up off the couch. I was, I loved my, my kids, obviously. And um, fortunately, I would never hurt them. Um, but the thoughts were terrifying. It was terrifying. Like, where did that thought come from? Never acted on it. Thank God. But the thoughts are terrifying. And the and some people experience it differently where they they detach from their child. They can't feel love for their child. Mm-hmm. Or they are they might feel um uh, angry at their child, at the baby, you know, resentful. Mm-hmm. And I, mine manifested differently, but it's, it's not, it's in a very, um, it's severe. Mine was severe, you know, in, in learning about it over, you know, the last 30 years now, I realized what it was, but 30 years ago, people weren't talking about it. I just thought I was crazy. Mm -hmm. I thought I was crazy. I was batshit crazy. And I was like, what is wrong with me? And so I didn't say anything. I withdrew. I would push people away. I was like, I don't want you to see this monster that I am because I'm having these thoughts, these intrusive thoughts is what they were. Mm -hmm. They weren't impulses. They were, mine were severe intrusive thoughts. And so I would have these severe intrusive thoughts. And then I would produce shame in myself of I'm a fucking monster. Who thinks that? Oh my God. I would, oh my God. And I would just, I was crazy. I felt crazy, Um, but I wasn't crazy. I had, I, I had a condition that is caused for many women, especially after the second, you know, in the second and subsequent children tends to, to be more common, um, that caused this disorder that changed my brain chemistry, changed my brain. And then I was experiencing that. So I share very candidly with my own mental health challenges there because it was terrifying. And so many women, mm-hmm. hi, so many women experience that with postpartum depression. I would say that if you're feeling these symptoms and we can put some links below, yes. um, again, I'm not, I'm not anti-Googling things. In fact, I'm all for it. Educate yourself, but then take that information to a clinician so you can, you can get help and don't diagnose yourself. I mean, get a valid diagnosis. Um, so many women, when it comes to that experience, what I experienced, and I remember, I remember distinctly because I, I, you know, quit my job so I could stay home with my kids and I did home daycare and um, that was a whole other thing, but it was fine. I enjoyed it. And the little kids grew up and whatever. So I, um, I was sitting and I, I think it was like Oprah. I think it was it was Oprah. It was Oprah show came on because she's been on since you know, the beginning of time. And I was sitting there and this, it lasted a year. Um, mm-hmm. when my son, after my son's first birthday, it was gone. Like, well, that's weird. I automatically, I already feel better. Okay, well, I must've just, you know, been going through it, right? And I 
just life was overwhelming like it was overwhelming but then it was like all of a sudden the sky opened up and I felt better and I remember some time had passed and the show came on I think my son was 18 months old something like that I hadn't come back to work yet and I remember it came on and I was doing something else and it piqued my interest they were talking about postpartum depression this woman was talking about what she experienced and I was like oh my gosh Mm-hmm. That is what I experienced. And yes, I'm talking about don't self-diagnose, but there's going, there can be times where you're like, I just hit every one of those things. And so I talked to, remember after that, I talked to my OBGYN about it. And I said, do you think that's what it was? And um, she said at the time, she said, absolutely what it was. So she kind of assessed me what I was experiencing, she, you know, went through all the safety things to make sure, you know, I was mm-hmm. safe and the kids were safe and we were found to be that way. Um, and then I wasn't experiencing it anymore, but I got that validation from her that yes, you, you did have that. And it's very common for it to kind of resolve over time. It can resolve over time on its own. And um, I wish as a 23 year old mother of, um, a three-year-old and an infant and just, I was way too young to be doing what I was doing and emotionally young mm-hmm. to be doing what I was doing. And I wish, I wish it's kind of one of those things. I wonder, I should say, cause I'm, my, my therapist is teaching me to reframe and not, not shame myself. I wonder what it would have been different had I known when I was experiencing those Mm -hmm. things so what I would say to any of you lovely mamas out there who are experiencing um really low mood you can't get up you you just you can't uh you're you might be having intrusive thoughts that are very scary about harming yourself harming others doing things you're like where the uh where did that come from um you could be sleeping a lot you could like looking at your baby and you're like I should love you but I can't um maybe you're feeling a lot of anger maybe you're feeling a lot of anxiety maybe you're feeling really low mood if you're feeling like any emotions anything again i go back to this no matter what you're experiencing how is it affecting your life how are you functioning on a scale of zero to five if you're below a three or even a just at three or and below mm-hmm. please reach out for help please reach out for help. Please reach out to your physician and say, I'm having this experience. They're not going to take your kids away. Okay. Maybe like, oh gosh, I'm thinking about doing this. I can't do this. I'm going to take my kids away. Um, or I, I, I don't love my kid. They're going to take my, no, that's, they don't take kids away for that. Um, what you're going to do is you're going to, to be able to say the words out loud. Mm-hmm. I'm, I need help. Mm-hmm. And then you can get help. I didn't have to suffer for 13 months. I didn't have to. And I suffered. Again, back up throughout my whole life. I have other kind of underlying things, but have experienced underlying things. But if if you're experiencing anything in your mental health that is affecting you in that way over long periods of time, um, you know, or let's say weeks or months, you're noticing it's different. Please Mm -hmm. ask for help. I wish... I, I do. If I could go back to that 23 year old, young, uh, poor, poor thing that she was, I would put my hands on her shoulders. I would put my forehead to her forehead and I would say, honey, you need help. Yeah. Let's get you help. I wish I had known. 
I wish I had known. So I, as a coach, as a professional, if somebody came to me and, and I've had clients who have experienced uh, postpartum depression, um, just recognizing that that might be what it is. I wouldn't diagnose them, but what I would say to them is I would, again, sit and be curious and say, tell me more about what you're feeling. What are you afraid of? Um, well, I don't want to say, cause I'm afraid if I'm, if I share that I'm having suicidal thoughts are going to come pick me up and take me to the psych ward. No, they're not. And I do want to talk about that when we talk about suicide. Um, and then, and then we, we would, we would partner together on getting the right resources for them so they can get help. And I would I, put my hand on their shoulders, my forehead to their forehead. And I said, sweetheart, you need help. Let's get you help. That's thank you for sharing that. That's what you've experienced and how you've overcome it and how it's grown you as a person. I can see that in, in your growth and taking a look back. Um, I've spoken multiple times on this podcast. I've had multiple miscarriages on different stages mm -hmm. in uh, pregnancy. And I suffered postpartum the second time. It was bad. Yeah. It was really bad. I was by, I, I was just, I didn't know. I didn't think you could from a miscarriage have postpartum. I really didn't. I didn't think you could, but you can. Yeah. Your body is confused. Where's, yeah. where's the baby? You're, you're postpartum. When yeah. you miscarry, you've, you've given birth. You've, exactly. You've not given, you've not given a live birth. Exactly. And it took a lot out of me. It took, I wasn't, I wasn't a year. I was, I was only about a month, but it was a month of just not being happy, having a hard time getting out of bed. Like, why am I here scenario? And I tell people and they're like, well, it's postpartum. And I went to the doctor and they're like, postpartum. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. it, it is, it is what it is. I take to do these steps that so you will feel better. And I did it. And you're right. And I, I remember the day where the sun came out for me and I just didn't feel hurt or sad or, or scared anymore. So I just, just, you know what I mean? I just, I felt, I felt better, but I was scared at the time. I was young. I was very young. <laughs> I would have been 25 right? Wow. 24, 25. I mean, I'm 29 now. It's not that long ago, but it feels like a long time ago because I'm more mature now and now know because we can talk about it and we can talk about it. Because I like, I, I learned about postpartum in school during sex ed, mm -hmm. but it was one period. And they said, this is what happens after you have a baby happens yeah. every time go to your doctor. That's all they talked about. They didn't talk about the signs what you experience is just, you're going to have it and you just have to go to the doctor after. Yeah, and, th then, and then knowing after that, that's not true. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for sharing that, Stassi. And, and yeah. I, I am uh, genuinely uh, feeling empathy for you for having those experiences um, of, of child loss. That's, it's a real loss. It's a real mm -hmm. loss of a child. And um, you know, when we talk about grief, you can be very disenfranchised. Um, or not accepted as grief. So thank you for sharing that with me. And just as you said, like all of a sudden, you're like, oh, damn, I feel better. And lastly, you know, that they would say what happens every time. It doesn't happen with it. No, it doesn't happen no. with every pregnancy. It does not. Um, there are certain uh, factors that increase the risk of it. In fact, when, when my daughter was pregnant with my grandson, I made damn sure that I drilled into her, talk to your OB, and your midwife about postpartum depression now before before you have this child 
Just talk to them now, get mm -hmm. things put into place so they can educate you. You can have a plan in case. I told her my story. I told her what I experienced. Um, and, you know, she was three at the time, like, thank God you're, you don't hate me. We, we joke now about it was just enough dysfunction to make them funny. But um, I, I think definitely talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. And that's one thing we can talk about, too. Let's say you have a friend who's, who's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Let them know. Say, hey look, I had this experience and I, can I share something with you? Have you talked to your doctor about postpartum depression? Mm -hmm. And I just want to encourage you again. We don't want to tell them what to do. We're not going to give them a fix, but we can give them suggestions if they're open to it and say, I, I want to encourage you to talk to your OB about postpartum depression so you can make a plan should it happen after you have the child. Because the more people that do that, it's it's not baby blues. I mean, for years, my parents' generation, it was baby blues. It's normal. It's not normal. Mm -mm. It's normal to have fluctuating emotions. I mean, I, I'm going to wrap my daughter up, but she, she cried at this little monkey that was playing You Are My Sunshine because um, I used to sing that to her as a baby. She's like, mom, I cried at a monkey today. That's normal. That's like, you know, mm -hmm. your, your emotions are a hot mess. What's not normal is for your every day to day to be affected at the level it was affected. That's, that's unusual. And that's when you want to reach out to, for help. I could not agree more. Um, please, if anyone's listening that is pregnant or knows anybody that's pregnant, talk to them about this, get them to talk to a medical professional, get it, get it now so that when it happens, there can be steps already in place until you just don't want to wake up one day and be, what is wrong? How did, how did I get here? And so you said down looking up as podcast is to stop from going all the way down, but to always have, um, a light up now, if it's okay, was there anything else you wanted to talk about depression before we go over to eating disorders? Yeah, let's uh, move on to that. Okay. So eating, eating disorders are, I don't want to say because it's a disgusting sentence to say but it's extremely common in anybody I can't even say young people because it's not that's not true anybody can have an eating disorder uh speaking from experience um I was anorexic from uh, 13 to 18 I was five years I suffered in silence because I was a fat kid I'm five foot for anybody who wants to know how short I am I'm very short I have the I have the body for a short person. I don't have a long torso. I don't have long legs. I can't be super skinny. It's just not how my butt, how my frame works. But I know that now. But I didn't know that as 13 years old because I was obsessed with watching America's Next Top Model. That was my dream. I wanted to be on America's Next Top Model. And then there was a Canada's Next Top Model. So I was like, I want to be on Canada's Next Top Model. I was a dancer. I I was too fat all the time. So then I lost a lot of weight. Um, my, I've, I had people very close to me, uh, comment to me all the time that I shouldn't look this way. I was fat. Um, that still sticks with me to this day of who said that to me and how they said it. I finally confronted them about it not that long ago, and they had no idea to what their words said affected me that much. To them, it was a throwaway comment, but to me, that's all I heard for the rest of my life. Um, I it was so bad. I was about uh, 99 pounds. You could see every bone in my body. Uh, my parents took it into a fact that I didn't understand because I was a kid that had it all. Why are you, why are you doing this? 
they thought it they thought it was just because I just chose not to eat that's not it that's definitely not it it is it's a form of control of being like I can't control everything around me um but I can control what I eat and I can control how I look um it was so bad my last year of high school I was rehabbed uh, for a good chunk of that year, I went, like I lived at re, uh, child rehab for eating disorders. And I will sit here and tell you, I was with uh, 10 other people and most of them were actually men. It wasn't women. It was men. Um, I think that is a common misconception that we think of uh, only women can have eating disorders. It's actually a lot of men have them too. Um, what actually happens. So I, I was able to pass on my courses. I, I basically said, I, I, I am healed. They knew I was full shit. You know, you're never healed. It's just something that you uh, learn to grow with. I also then became a sponsor after for people that were in the program still. And I would help them of what it looked like on the other side and how it was to go back to normal. Um, and even still to this day. Um, so I, I recently just did keto because I gained a lot of weight throughout the pandemic. Um, a lot of us did, you know, just to add that sprinkle onto everything's wonderful and great when your clothes don't fit. And every single parent was completely concerned because they, they know I've always had a problem with my weight still to this day. And they were like, well, how are you doing it? How are you? Like, they were like, my mom especially was extremely worried that I was going to take it too far. Cause not only was I doing keto, I was fasting at the same time because you kind of have to do that when you're doing keto because you're eating so much fat you're eating so like you're eating Caesar salad, you're eating bacon, you're eating meat, but you're taking away the carbs and the sugar that you sh you don't need to eat as much because I'm eating so heavily, like high fat. But they were concerned that I was fasting because I will gladly, um, I can gladly say that, um, like I was able to, you know, get better at it but it takes time and like I can go three days without eating like today I could go three days today without eating without a doubt and it, I would not feel any different from today from three days from now uh, and that scares a lot of people because it should but because I did it for so long when I was younger I trained my body that it's okay like as a content creator I'm sure sometimes you don't eat till 10 p.m at night because you've just spent the last 18 hours doing everything, I could do that every day. Um, the biggest problem I had in rehab was eating three meals a day. That was the first thing they instilled you. You must eat three meals a day or uh, I think, it, or three meals a day or six snack meals, but you're, you're eating. I could go breakfast and lunch without eating every day. Does not affect me. Um, it, I could eat dinner and I could probably eat two carrots for dinner and be fine. Still, like now, it takes a lot to realize that that's not okay. Like you, like your body actually needs the food. You may physically think you're okay, but your body is starving. You're dehydrated. You're giving it no fuel. So your, your motor functions are down. Your thinking process is down. Um, that's stuff I still live with. Not only do I have to still live with that, um, I also have body dysmorphia. No matter for the rest of my life, I will never be satisfied with my body. I could I could look like Megan Fox and I would still find that problem. Mm -hmm. It could be 
my shoulders are too bulged or I have my arms are too fat or my boobs are too small or my butt's too big. Like I will always find that error. And even still to the, like now I'm people associate me as the queen of bodysuits. I will wear multiple sets of Spanx walking out the door when I go to an, a big event because that's how I feel comfortable. I don't want anybody to see any layer of stomach fat because that is my biggest trigger is stomach fat. Because and, God forbid we have fat on our bodies. It's naturally there. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I just um, had surgery, not for anything cosmetic. I had to get my appendix out and I had a cyst burst on my ovaries back last month. It was, it was an 11 centimeter cyst that burst. Ouch. And the, tra- and the yeah, uh, the fluid got trapped all over my body. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they weren't hundred percent sure what was the cause and effect. Was it the appendix that was causing it? Because when I had the x-ray, they couldn't find the appendix. And when they did the ultrasound, they found a, a cyst had burst and there was another big cyst next to it. Anyways, long story short, I had to get my appendix. I got my appendix removed. I got uh, the cyst drained, another cyst removed, and they had to drain my stomach because of um, they found old blood in my stomach from the cyst which I still don't know how that got there, but believe them. So um, looking at my stomach today, I looks like I've lost 20 pounds because I no longer have an 11 centimeter cyst on my ovaries, which makes you look pregnant. And I will, I don't, I don't particularly care for most celebrities these days, but Haley Bieber, the same week that this happened, walked out on Instagram held her stomach up. She's like, I'm not pregnant. Stop asking me if I'm pregnant. I have an ovarian cyst. It just looks like I'm pregnant. And I was like, she's like, it was the size of an apple. So it was, we were almost about the same size. And I, I loved that because I was like, okay. Cause I looked at my stomach yesterday and I look at my stomach every day. I am a fiend in the mirror. I will look and I will judge and I'll be like, my stomach's flat. It's flatter than what it was because there's no bulge of a cyst purging out. So anyways, I feel like that was a huge vomit throwing up, but I got a big bucket. (laughs) (laughs) But like eating disorders, it's very common. My stepsister has one. It's not a hundred percent confirmed, but I'm pretty sure my niece has one. I'm sure when I have a child, I'll probably have one. Because looking at social media and wanting to determine what's beautiful is not realistic. So back when I was younger, it was twiggy. It was small. It was size zero or nothing. Well, now it's more body positivity is a little bit more out there. But when I was younger, body positivity was a double zero or nothing. Thank you for sharing, Stasi. First of all, I want to just say thank you for sharing. It sounds like you know that the body body dysmorphic disorder or BDD is is um, almost always going to go along with eating disorders. Kind of like you know they they're mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and to hear that you are still challenged with that. May I, so I want to validate everything, everything you said and what you're experiencing now. And, and, yeah. and I want to ask if I may challenge something you said a minute ago. Sure. I want to challenge this, what you shared that your child probably will have one too. 
Mm-hmm. And I want to say that it's not, I don't, I, the only word that comes to me is normal to, to experience body dysmorphia just because you're on Instagram. Mm-hmm. It's because we see, because Instagram is relatively new in the grand scheme of media, right? So before yeah. Instagram, we had magazines, we had MTV, we had, t- you know, we, we had teen magazine, we had uh, Victoria's Secret models. We, I mean, over the years, Instagram isn't new. There's nothing new under the sun. Instagram is just different and is a different way to view that to compare ourselves. Because the other thing that I heard you say mm-hmm. is um, it's to this, it's to that. And anytime we, we have a thought that something is to anything, we're comparing it to something mm-hmm. else. So what's happening is um, it's, it's, there's, there's no, um, we, we have to stop villainizing Instagram influencers and models. I'm not saying that's what you are doing, but I'm saying as a, as a a cult, as a just collective, there are content creators that are creating content based on where they're feeling, feeling creative. Now, that being said, there's that whole other background of that's probably not their real life Mm -hmm. and maybe they do have augmentation and things like that and that's their prerogative what we have to do is really call out the elephant in the room that it's not the instagram model it's the disorder the uh disorder yeah it's that propensity and it's more of the person who's viewing it and how they receive that because if i'm looking at instagram models and i've been guilty of this not as much anymore i think you know as for me personally as i get older like i'm not as focused on that um I am but I'm not but I I would say as a teen when I was from the age of I was under 80 pounds Mm -hmm. until I was 18 Mm -hmm. I was literally wanted to keep myself under 80 pounds at 16 and 17 so I wouldn't eat because I thought if I broke 75 pounds that I was fat I don't know where that came from probably because I have obesity in my family like actual obesity in my family Mm -hmm. um and but you know that that changed after a while but what i want to say is if if anyone is viewing instagram movies tv magazines i don't care wherever the images are i don't care where they are they could be on twitter they could be on tiktok i don't care wherever the image is coming from that is making that word too come mm-hmm. to mind then the viewer would do well to look inside to say why Am I putting that word in between me and, mm-hmm. but two is the same thing as should. I should look this way. And we feel that because we're comparing ourselves to other people and that doesn't have to happen. Now, when we talk about a disordered thinking around our bodies or it's, it's, it's a disorder, just like everything else we've talked about today, bipolar, depression, mm-hmm. Um, postpartum, everything we've talked about today, it's something in the brain that is registering information in a certain way, be it learned, be it, you know, uh, developed over time. There's something in there that that benefits, that can be healed. Mm-hmm. If someone is experiencing body dysmorphia, if someone is experiencing disordered eating, and thank you for saying that I can go three days without eating. And mm-hmm. yeah, as a content creator, I'm, I'm sitting here. I mean, I'm guilty. I really realized today I had an apple and an egg for breakfast because I was like, I need to eat because I'm not fueling my body. 
not because I want to lose weight, but because like, I'm just focused on content creation and, and right now, mm -hmm. and that's not healthy because our bodies are like cars. And it's like saying, well, I'm not going to put gas in my car and expect it to run. Eventually your body's going to break down and you're going to experience all the things you, you said. And so thank mm -hmm. you for being really honest about that. Absolutely. And we don't, nobody has, we can be people who spend a shit ton of time on Instagram, looking at Instagram models going, man, that's a cute bathing suit. Boy, she's really pretty. Mm -hmm. she's really, I mean, whether she's really pretty, maybe, maybe it's filters, maybe it's not, but you look and say, that's a really pretty image. Um, we can, we can look at things going, boy, I really love to go to Barbados. I wish I could, you know, I could spend an hour or two hours or an old, the whole day looking at these images mm -hmm. without having to compare myself because that in between those two things, how, the image and the how the person's receiving it is what, what we need to focus on when it comes to viewing social media mm -hmm. in a way that affects us as people. Now, that being said, if that's happening, it doesn't, it, you're, you're in good company because many of us do it again. Mm -hmm. I've been guilty of it. I remember I used to look at, um, before I was on Instagram, um, Victoria's secret models in my twenties, thirties, my thirties. And I used to just, gosh, I, I need to look like that mm -hmm. because that's what a beautiful woman looks like. So I get what you're saying. I get that body dysmorphic dysmorphia, um, just disordered thinking about my body. Mm -hmm. happening into my thirties. Mm -hmm. And now I did lose about six. Now I have gained some back this year. The stress, the cortisol will do that. Um, and the pizza <laughs> anyways, <laughs> and ice cream, but I, I did lose 60 pounds because there, there is like where, what's your comfortable weight. I think that's the different thing, but I really want to hone in Stasi. I want to hone in that we don't have we, we don't have to feel that way. And if we do, yeah. feel that, it's okay to, to reach out. And I know, I know you, you know, share that you, you have been talking to clinicians your whole life and that's what we need. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to talk to somebody else and say to them, um, I don't want to leave the house with, you know, 50 layers of space. Now that being said, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. No, you know, that's so comfortable in your body. It's the thinking, like, how is it affecting your, your self-esteem? How is that making you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror? Can you look at, can you look in the mirror naked? No. And that's I, the question. I still can't. I yeah. get so anxious. I can't do it. I literally can't do it. I, I still can't. And like, now I wear compression tank tops every day. I've worn a compression tank top every day for a year. I use it as a bra because I don't like like bras anymore, but it holds my stomach into place all day. Who, who wears bras anymore? I know. <laughs> it's two thousand dollars. It's so true. I cannot look in the mirror. I if I look, all I see is stretch marks, and I and I fixate and I stare and I look at them and I'm like, because they look like claws. And I. And that's but that's, that's normal. Thing. It's normal. I know it's normal now, but it's so hard going and thinking like oh that's just what women's bodies look like oh look there's kim kardashian she'd have had three kids well two 
like pregnancies, but she doesn't look like that. And I know as an adult that that's not realistic. I think, I think a big thing I, I really want to hone in on is yes, we can't blame Instagram models, but we can blame them for one thing when they have fillers and they have Botox and they have, and they've done to edit themselves but they admit they just wake up naturally this beautiful. When they're like, I just use this skin cream and it makes my wrinkles go away, but they've actually had Botox done or they've had some form of surgery to replace it. A lot of them don't say anything. That's what irritates me. Call Absolutely. a spade a spade. Because I'd be the first Absolutely. person. So I want to say again, there's nothing new under the sun. Instagram models are not the only ones. They're getting no. paid. Yeah. They're getting paid to represent a product. Yeah. And models and actors and actresses and and talent have been doing that since the beginning of advertising oh yeah of, sex of, sells uh, marketing 101 sex sells no matter what so you sell you know that right um yeah. marketing cigarettes is being cool marketing face cream is you know i naturally look this way i i look like i'm you know, I have wrinkles and all of these flaws that we don't want to see on people's faces because God forbid they have wrinkles. Mm-hmm. But this, I use this cream every day and look at me. I like it. No, honey, you have a really good video editor. Yeah. And so I, and that's, that's I, what I want to say is I want to say it's, it's not, we have to stop villainizing the people because what they're doing is they're doing what they get paid to do, but they're doing it in the only way that they know how. Mm-hmm. And for them, I, to be back to being a content creator, mm-hmm. um, I wonder how their mental health is. Oh, probably really bad. Probably I'm really, sure. really, really bad because they're continuously comparing. It's, yeah, it's, themselves. It's apples to apples, right? Well, it, because it it could even forbid they get is it. Oh yeah, but it could also be comparing to like Instagram to Instagram models. So say uh, Kathleen and Kristen. Kathleen has five hundred thousand followers. Kristen has a million followers, but they do the same thing. The one that has mm-hmm. five hundred thousand followers is like, well, how come I can't be that million? Because we do the same thing. How come she's more popular than me? We both live in the same city. We both do the same thing. How come she's more versus what me? And it's it's just it goes into that mindset mm-hmm. of you're always comparing yourself to the next person because. Well, you think the grass is greener on the other side, but that's not always the case. Yeah, like if not- I, if I looked at a, an America's Next Top Model model when I was a kid, I idolized that as you did Victoria's Secret Models. I idolized, I wanted to be that so bad. Now hearing what it would, the experience was like would have been terrible, but mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't care about the experience when I saw it because I just saw these beautiful girls doing these gorgeous photo shoots and like getting to do these brands and just looking so put together. But looking at the final product, now I know because I did went to graphic design school, that that's all Photoshopped. They made their waists smaller. They honed in on certain stuff to make it, that's not what their actual bodies look like. They have these, if you look at their like arms or- <laughs> Yeah, just they're just put, because like, because they can CC on him and their hearts are like yeah exactly right so I think it's just kind of more of like may I share something yeah of course I mind I, what, what I want what I want to share is yeah. that right wrong or indifferent of of what is happening what what happens mm-hmm. in the world of of media and mm-hmm. advertising because that's what it is. It's advertising. They're advertising themselves. They're influencing yep. other, they're making money. That's, that's their job. That's the, that's the breadwinner. It's a moneymaker. Um, regardless, right, right, wrong, or if indifferent, if we can take that 
kind of uh, judgment, and I don't mean that in a negative way, just kind of that label, and just mm -hmm. put it aside for a second. It all boils, my point is it all boils down to the self-esteem of the viewer mm -hmm. and how we can build our own self-esteem in a way to where we can look in the mirror, to where we can look at these models and be like, honey, you don't look like that. And we can be disgusted with them. There's nothing wrong with that. We can we can look at advertising and whatever and, and be like, okay, yeah, what video editor do you use? Because I need it for my project kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and we can have those thoughts without the additional thought of, and I should look like that way too, or, and how they look there in front of me, how whatever it is, Kardashian or whomever, we can have those thoughts about them or about what we're seeing without it affecting who we are as a person and affecting how we see ourselves. That's the piece I'm talking about with, with the getting support is, is realizing that I don't have to look at these other people and compare myself. I don't have to, and we can talk about creators now because <laughs> that's the whole thing. I don't have to creator to creator, look at this other creator and, and compare myself. Mm -hmm. I don't have to look better, bigger, stronger, uh, whatever. I don't have to change who I am for anyone, or I don't have to change how I feel about myself because someone else looks a certain way or doesn't look a certain way or whatever. Um, that's the self-esteem piece and mm -hmm. building. So if I'm, if I'm as a coach, if I'm working with a client that come to me and they were sharing this with me, we would, I would start challenging them with some self-esteem questions and we would start working on self-esteem, getting them in a plan to a point where they, they either just don't look at that stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. That's fine. If that's not, if that's something that's triggering a disorder, then get the fuck off there. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, don't look at it anymore or look at, look at different things. If it's triggering your disorder, if your disorder is being, if you have a disorder, experience a disorder and it's being triggered, please, please continue to talk to clinicians about that so that you can get a plan in place to help you manage that so that you get to the point because you can get to the point mm -hmm. where you can stand in front of the mirror naked, where you can go ahead and eat, you know, six meals a day, where you can do all of these things and feel good about who you are because you're building that self-esteem and the more self-esteem you can build and the more help you can get with how your brain is processing the information, it's going to, it can get to the point where there's hope where you don't have to live that way. In everything we're talking about, Stasi, if nobody hears anything else, if you clip this at the beginning of a highlight, like, Hey, here, I just want to put this at the beginning because if you're only going to listen to like her yammer on for 10 minutes, I want people to hear this. Mm -hmm. You do not have to stay where you're at. In your oh, yeah. Health. You do not have to. There's hope and you can feel better. You can have generalized anxiety disorder. You can have body dysmorphia disorder. You can have bipolar disorder and you can live and flourish in your life without it affecting you in a way and in fact, your life can overtake those disorders, but you have to have the right help in place. It can't be managed on your own if it's affecting your life. I could not agree more. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for also normalizing it. And I, I agree. I, I've been sitting being like, fuck these models, but they're just doing the same job we are. They're just yeah. getting paid more and they're associating with brand. I've just picked up my first partner. 
So I'm now partnered with a company called Butterly. They sent their Canadian company. They send me products and I talk about them and um, it's no different. They just get paid for their bodies where I just kind of get paid more because they, so they think moms look at my account, which moms do look at my account because most women who are fall Stassi are mom bearing age. And I know that's how I got that, that partner because I'm selling kids stuff and creams it's like i i got my first ever uh campaign was uh the 12 days of colgate and i got the kids stuff i'm mm-hmm. literally looking at her and i got kids toothpaste and a toothbrush and i was like how the fuck did i get this and i was like because kids because moms, moms you're doing the same thing i'm doing the same thing i'm just not selling my body i'm just selling good teeth <laughs> but it's the same it's the same thing what um, what you're what you're selling is you're you're selling audience. They're not looking at the model. They're looking at the the audience that the model has built and the influence. That's why it's called an influencer mm-hmm. that the model has and who that model has influence over. So it's 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 not as much as that they're selling their body. It's that their appearance has mm-hmm. created influence within their scope, their sphere of influence, and their sphere of influence has gotten big. And that is what brands are looking at because they're mm-hmm. looking at the sphere of influence and they're saying, okay, your sphere of influence is this and we want these people to buy our shit. So here, we're going to throw money at you. And it, that that's how marketing works, right? Oh yeah, you know One, 101. It's literally, I'll literally say, how do we, how do we sell a pipe dream? We give mm-hmm. it to somebody, they sell it for us and then we just reap the reward. Exactly. Basically, that's what's marketing happening. Marketing 101, literally. Yeah. Um, well, anyways, I would like to close up this topic. Um, if there's anything else you wanted to add, because we're going to talk about a very deep topic next, yes. and I'm sure you can figure the last topic on the board is originally I was going to have it first, but I thought we would save it to the end. Yes. Um, uh, trigger warning for anybody listening. We're going to talk about suicide. Um, it's an extremely, extremely sad topic. And honestly, it can make you feel uncomfortable. Talking about suicide makes me feel extremely uncomfortable because I don't know how I'm supposed to react. I know that's really sad to say, but this is a trigger warning and we're going to talk about it. Um, first, what we're going to talk about um, um, is it happens to anybody and everybody. A lot of people in December, just like me, I like, I go, I like to go on my daily trash is what I like to call it. And I like to read, you know, scandalous news because it makes me feel better that I have uh, a normal life. Yeah. Same. And um, we saw that uh, uh, DJ Twitch for anybody who watched Ellen DeGeneres. Um, I watched Ellen a lot when I was in school. Uh, we knew DJ Twitch. He was always extremely happy. Um, he would we would never think anything in the world. Uh, he took his own life last year uh, back at the beginning of December and it threw everybody for a loop because literally the week before he celebrated his, I think it was nine or 10 year anniversary with his wife and the photos, he looked so happy, but it's not, it's not the first instance. I, I know of that lots of celebrities have taken their lives over the years. I know the first one that really hit hard with me was back in 2014 uh, when Robin Williams died. I that threw me for a loop. Um, I really loved Robin Williams. He was one of my favorite actors. Uh, anytime I was feeling sad, um, I would watch any of his movies or interviews online um, for many, many years. Um, he was in a movie called Good Morning Vietnam, 
where he played a radio announcer and he would up make everybody who was listening to the radio station very happy for many, many years. My phone number for anyone who texted me was like, good morning, but Vietnam. Like it, it just brought me so much joy because listening to him brought me joy. And then you have the famous uh, chef Anthony Bersett. Anthony, I can't, I always butcher his last name. Uh, in the chef community, um, he died. He killed. He took. He took his own life. That is, it again threw me for loop because he had it all. He was a well-established chef. Um, that's actually something that they too talk about in culinary school. Is chef mental health? I kid you not. That's year two, and what happens when a chef loses a star? That's basically you just took their lives away from them. Um, it's really heartening and just, uh, bad to see. Um, you think outside looking in, like for all of us who are chasing that that wheel of money and uh, our lives put together, and seeing these celebrities are also in the same boat, and just anyone around us, it's absolutely devastating to see. Uh, what I wanted to talk about when it came to suicide is. For example, Twitch, seven days prior, he had photos taken with his wife and his baby mm-hmm. celebrating nine years of marriage to then a week later, he he took his own life. So right. what could we could we have seen it? Not as us uh, extremely outside looking in, but say a family member is in that scenario that's like like someone in your life, could you, can you see the signs before it's too late? I, I hate, I hate that I have to say this, but not always. Yeah. Not always. Um, the, when I, I want to, st- yes. So not always, I think suicide is such a, a heady topic and we have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, increased even just suicidal ideation which is something that we would assess i you know assess with clients all the time um increased like exponentially i don't know with the company i was working for is like something around 600 percent of the calls we would get of people who were experiencing some level of suicidal ideation which means thoughts to thoughts to a plan to a plan to a you know acting on it so um not always because we talked about masking Mm-hmm. We talked about the need for people oftentimes who are experiencing mental health challenges, um, severe mental health decline, feel shame, feel stigmatized, don't know how to say I need help, don't realize they need help and feel hopeless. What we know about or what we we believe about those who complete suicide Um is is that it's not something that they thought about just in the moment. It's something that accumulated over time. Um, and there it's not that they wanted and wanted to to die. It's that they didn't want to hurt any longer. Mm-hmm. Were there signs? I don't know. Were there signs with Robin Williams? I don't know. Maybe subtle, maybe not to the to the eye, because I mean, how do we view success in a life, right? Mm-hmm. We've us in especially in celebrities like they they had it all mm-hmm. on the outside but what did they have on the inside because they're still humans they're just humans that are really visible and that's something that I would love to be able to talk about even small creators is as mm-hmm. you get more visible it's a whole different ball game with your own mental health 
in terms of suicide, if I may, I'd like to kind of break it down into, into two, two parts. Absolutely. I could break it down a lot more, but, um, we could do a whole segment on this. Um, first and foremost, what, what I want to say, as far as my, my own training in this has been very, um, very, uh, a lot. (laughs) So very a lot, that's not the word I was looking for, but you know what I mean? Um, extensive in this, in, um, assessing for, suicide. So I want to, I want to talk about first from an assessor, from somebody who is, who's assessing, and, you know, you're going to get this at all different levels, depending on, you know, clinically where you're at, but in general, when, when we as a mental health professional are assessing for suicide risk, mm-hmm. we're assessing for different things. First, we're going to assess, have you had thoughts of harming yourself or, or others or ending your life? So we're going to talk about that. The answer is yes. Then we're going to ask the question of, have you thought about how you might do this? Um, somebody says, well, you know, I, I think I might go to a, to a big tall building and jump off, but they're nowhere near a big tall building. Then we kind of know it's, you know, might be intrusive thoughts, but you know, we'll, we talk through those. Um, then, then we're going to talk about means, you know, how, how much access do you have? And depending on the lethality of the means, you know, is it, is it a weapon? Um, is it something else that's uh, we could put space? So the the goal in assessing somebody, especially as the risk gets higher, is to put space in between them and the act. And what I want to say to anybody who's listening is we cannot stop someone from completing suicide. Our job is not to stop them. And that you might be like, oh, I'm going to turn this person off. What the hell she's talking about? First, we want to stop them. Well, no, we 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 don't want them to. Obviously, but what we have to understand is is our jobs. As, clin- as mental health professionals and friends is to put space in between them and the act. And so that's kind of what the goal is when we're assessing. So if I'm assessing someone, I'm going to ask you, and, and if you have access to means and those means are lethal, then I'm going to knock it up to a, to a higher risk. And I'm probably, probably going to act on that just for your safety. But what I want to say is, is there's fear a lot of times when people say, well, I've been having thoughts of, of suicide, I've been having thoughts of ending my life. Um, I don't have a plan. I mean, when I think about it, I think about, I don't know, running into traffic or, or I think about, and I don't know, drinking too much, or I think about taking Advil or just whatever intrusive thoughts or just simply, not simply, this is a hard thought to have thinking I'd be better off dead in all of this. That's mm-hmm. an important thought to have. We want to talk through that. And we want to assess, you know, what is that? Is it an intrusive thought? Is it something else? But what we're going to assess is, is how likely is that person to act on it? And so reaching out for help because you're having thoughts, and especially if you're having thoughts and, and might act on it, please, please don't be afraid to reach out for help. And I mean, I hear it all the time. Please, please, please don't, don't call. I don't want to go to the, to the quote unquote loony bin. I don't want to go to the psych ward. I don't, the, 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 I'm not going to make a safety call. So as a clinician, I was a a manager for the coaching company. So on call, I would do many of these interventions with people um, where I would, some, I would have to do safety calls. And the, the only time I would do that is if there was a risk and it would be in conversation with that person. But if somebody was coming and, and we realized that, you know, they, they weren't a risk to themselves right now that we could get them some help. I'm not going to call the ambulance to come get them. So please, please hear that it's okay. Please, please reach out for help. Um, 
there, we're going to have some numbers for you in the in the U.S. There's a new suicide crisis lifeline that's 988. You can text it. Um, or you could call it, and there are people on the other end of that, 24 hours in uh, English and Spanish. They're working on some other languages as well. Um, you can also call the National Suicide Hotline. Um, I thought I had it pulled up, but I'm going to pull that up. Um, which, which 988 is really starting to take the place of that. And that's the lifeline. So you can call that line or text that line if you're having thoughts of harming yourself, even if it's intrusive, um, but, and get help. They're not going to send somebody to get you and take you away because you're having thoughts. They're gonna get you the help you need. And if that help is helping you get to the hospital or somewhere where somebody can help you get better and feel better, then that's the goal. They're not going to get locked up. It's not, I want to destigmatize that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to take you to jail. We're, we're going to, we're going to get you help. We're going to get you help. Um, so, so I wanted to say that for somebody who's experiencing it, I know for, for you, Stassi, you were going to share some resources for the UK and Canada. Well, thank you. Uh, the mom pay for sharing the U S it's, it was really important to me that not only did I have the U S audience, uh, for information, but also Canada and the UK. Uh, those are three of three of the biggest listeners I have. Um, mental effect, mental health affects everybody and yes. everybody should be able to have resources. Um, I have Canada's here. If you're struggling with suicidal thoughts or know someone's struggling, please call uh, Talk Suicide Canada. Uh, they're 24 seven, 365. Uh, they are in English and French. Um, the phone number is one 833 uh, four, five, six, four, five, six, six. It is toll free. I, you will not be charged for the call. Um, there will have, they will have people on the other side, ready to hear, ready to talk to you. Uh, in the UK, uh, it is suicide prevention UK. And the phone number is please, if, if this is a UK phone, like I'm going to, I'm going to try to read it. I've never had to read out a UK phone number in my life before. So it's, uh, four, four space, eight, zero, zero space, 689 space 5652. Same idea um, as uh, the US and Canada. They will have experts on the other side helping you. And if you need uh, anything, they will get you what you need. And that's not going to a mental asylum and in a white jacket that could literally just be talking to you and making you, your feelings feel validated and, and knowing that it's going to be okay. And that there are other options that you can take. That's not ending your own life. Thank you, Stassi. I, I do, I do want to um, be really transparent and call out that, uh, especially in the black communities um, there, there's a real fear of 911 for some um, and the fear of police to come. And, and I'm going to call that out um, based on what has been shared with with me from clients and, and mm -hmm. others as well. So just know um, that, that I just, I just want to say that, um, that telling someone to call 911 might evoke some uh, traumatic response in them. Mm -hmm. And that is the reason why 988 was created because it's a, it's a less invasive approach to getting help. And it's kind of a mix between people who can assess the safety of someone and these other lifelines as well and and then get the help that they need as they need it and and so i just i just wanted to call that out that um as somebody and i want to shift to the other point which is as somebody with people around us how can we recognize if someone might be 
uh, in danger of, of ending their own life or attempting or completing suicide. Um, and, 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 you know, things like the lifeline, um, 988lifeline.org is the website as well. There's, there's some tips on there for helping other people, but, you know, being mindful about how saying, oh gosh, we got to call 911 or, or asking them to call 911, um, might, might be difficult, might cause some trauma for some. So just being aware of that, not that it's inherently bad over totally, but, uh, just, just for some. So I want to talk about people who love people and how do we recognize the signs of someone who might might be struggling. Um, one, of, one of the things I'm trained on is the Columbia Suicide Rating Scale and what that is. I'm a trained trainer for that. And what that is, is it's a way for anybody, whether it be a teacher or a police officer or um, a friend or a volunteer or just mm -hmm. a lay person to mental health, helping someone identify and put a plan in place for their risk. I want to say also um, that it's 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 oh, it might be scary to ask the question and going back to what we talked about earlier that leaning into people's hard emotions can be scary for us because again what if I say the wrong thing mm -hmm. I also want to say remembering that we can't stop somebody from having the thoughts you can't fix that for them but what you can do is you can help get the space in between them and the act to to help them get better hopefully or at least support them in that. And the hope is that they'll take it. And so I, some of the things that you, we might look for in signs would be, you know, if somebody is, is just talking really bad about themselves or saying things like, you know, I just, I'm, I'm just better off not here. Nobody would miss me. Um, I wish I, I, uh, go to bed and not wake up. Um, I just, I just can't take life anymore. Those are the more outward signs. And sometimes that happens. And if that does happen, it's okay to ask the question. I always ask the question. In fact, I've had the opportunity in this community multiple times to ask the question in DMs to friends and, and, you know, people just were kind of reaching out to me, just asking the question. And sometimes it's hard for them to receive that question because it's jarring to ask mm -hmm. the question have, I, I need to ask a question if that's okay. And um, I, I need to know, or I'd like to know if you're willing to share, have you been having thoughts of harming yourself or ending your life? And it's okay to ask the question again and again, if you feel like maybe the answer is not authentic, ask again at a later time, but always ask the question. If they say yes, then it's okay again to say, say more. Um, the the Columbia Suicide Rating Scale has, it's like this whole scale that you can go, I'm not going to go into detail on that, but in short, what it does is it gives kind of this list of questions you can ask that helps you identify if somebody is in the, the green, the yellow, the orange, or the red of, of completing suicide. And as I'd say, as a friend, you're a little bit close to it and you can, it's okay if you really feel I'm, I'm I'm worried about you. I'm worried about you and I want you to be safe. I want you to feel safe. And let's, let's talk about that. Um, and so asking the question of them and let's say it's your partner or let's say it's your mom or your friend, that's going to feel hard for you because it's, it's affecting you too. You say, let's talk. Are you comfortable talking about this? Because 
I, I'm really worried about you. Let's let's get you some help. And getting the resources, again, back to the same thing, encouraging them, let's get you some mental health support, reaching out to the lifelines together, maybe getting on the phone call together and talking it through. And then I want to talk about the, I'm going to pause there, see if you have any questions. No, no, I'm good. And then I want to, now I want to talk about the instances, which is common, where it's like, it happens. I should have known. Mm-hmm. Not always, not always because they're suffering in silence. You have the, the, the people, people like Twitch, people like Robin Williams, people like uh, Anthony, Anthony Bourdain or whatever. Yeah. Things. Um, even their own family members were surprised, people closest to them. But then looking back, they recognize the subtle signs. They recognize maybe they started to withdraw a little bit more. Maybe they're a little bit quieter. Maybe um, one of the things that is common for someone who completes suicide is that prior to their the act, they're very happy. They're very happy. They're calm. They're the calmest they've ever been. Like maybe they were just down and in, in, in the dark or just kind of off. And then all of a sudden they are free as a bird, happy, just do, doing the thing. And then all of a sudden, and what we understand about that is that they've oftentimes they've really thought this through and they've resolved that they have a thought with a plan with the means plan Mm -hmm. to use the means and a date yeah and they say on this day at this time i'm going to do this thing i'm going to enjoy myself they might give away possessions they're like why are you giving this away just kind of thinking these things through um those can be signs but it doesn't always happen and because they're, they, they might at that point feel at peace that it's going to be over soon. And that's what we know um, about many people who, who get to that point. Um, but the signs aren't always there. So second to lastly, I want to talk to, to those who have had this happen. Regardless of if you realize there were signs now, regardless of if looking back in hindsight, you were like, I should have known you didn't. And you are not responsible for how that person was feeling or not feeling or their act. You didn't cause it. You're not at fault. Suicide grief is very, very traumatic and unique very traumatic and unique. There's a, there can be a lot of shame, especially if it's a child or a spouse. There can be a lot of um, just guilt and in those feelings. Please, please get help. Please, please find someone, uh, a licensed person, a trained person to talk through your grief. Suicide grief is very unique and takes very unique training. And um, so I can send Stasi some links for that as well. Survivors yes, of suicide um, loss as well. So I just wanted to, it's such a big heady topic, but just to recap, if you're having those thoughts, please, please reach out. It's okay. Nobody's going to come pick you up and take you anywhere un- unless you really, really need to be taken somewhere to help you get out of that space and to get you the help you need. Um, it's not arbitrary. It's because because you you may not feel it in yourself and it may make you mad like how dare they well how dare they is they they want you to be safe um for those who are with a loved one 
There are signs. You can, again, go to 988lifeline.org, National Suicide Hotline website. There are resources on there to read, some signs, some questions you can ask um, to help others. And then lastly, remembering that if you are a survivor of suicide loss, it was not your fault. Please get support. Get support because it's a very, very traumatic, unique grief. Well, the mom cave, thank you so much um, for sharing. Um, my, I had a friend, uh, she took her own life when I was 18. She would have been 20. And it was so sad because I know she was in a bad place, but I didn't think she'd do that. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think it like she, cause she was like, she was fine. Um, and then when, it, when it happened and when we, that we learned what had happened, it was just, it was so sad because mm-hmm. all she kept saying, and cause she left a letter, uh, is that she hoped to find the peace. Sorry. You're okay. Take your time. That's hard. <laughs> the peace that she was looking for. She was hurting and wanted peace. I hope she found the peace. Yeah. Sorry, I don't usually cry on these things, but that one hurts. Yeah. The most. So, anyways, I want to thank you for talking. And it happened. It like and you just you feel lost afterwards because you you didn't know you didn't know it wasn't your fault until it was up until, until it was too late yeah. and you sit and you think what could I have done differently yeah what could I have changed and there's nothing I've played that situation in my head over a thousand times and there's nothing I could have done differently there is nothing because of what because it wasn't your fault it wasn't your decision it wasn't your choice nope. it was her choice Exactly. It was her choice. To, that was how she responded to the pain that she was feeling that you and others around her. And, and this is, this is the thing, Stasi, is that when somebody's at that level of pain, they're almost never, never, rarely going to show the level of pain that they're feeling. And it really is underneath that, where the decisions are happening in their minds it's it's been it's been said that oftentimes if somebody is reaching out saying i'm having thoughts of suicide they want help mm-hmm. if somebody it, not they don't, they don't want to end their life they want help otherwise they wouldn't be reaching out at some level they might think they do but they're reaching out that's their last resort yeah or those who don't reach out and keep it quiet they're resolved they've been resolved for a long time to to act on their pain and that's not something anyone around them can do except educate ourselves as much as we can and ask the question but know that once the question goes out there and i've experienced this many 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 times with clients mm-hmm. your jaw your um you can control asking the question you can't control how they receive it and if they respond to you uh in a way that's not completely how they're feeling you didn't cause that you can rest and know you asked the question but if you didn't ask the questions because you didn't know to at the time and that's okay too it wasn't your fault yeah 
sorry, I'm just trying, thank you. I'm just trying to compose myself so I can continue. Um, I want to thank you so much for, you know, sharing a light when it comes to suicide, because it, for me, it's so uncomfortable because it's all I can think is, is her. Yeah. And I just get like anxious and I just don't want to talk about it. And I feel a lot of people feel that way if they have seen somebody suffer for it or have heard the story mm-hmm. you just don't know what to say you don't because how what do you say I'm, I'm sorry but you didn't do anything and you feel sad because they were your friend yeah and you could have saw like you think like maybe there was something there was something there or there wasn't and you and you, then you think start going back and you're just was there something I was missing and maybe there wasn't and maybe there was and then you just keep thinking and thinking and thinking and to the point that you're just why why there was there was so much more but maybe in in their mind there wasn't any more that's all they could have and knowing you have to come to peace with that 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 was their choice it's not your choice it's not what you would have done it's what they did and it's just being able to get proper counseling and just knowing that um, hopefully they found the peace that they were looking for. So I can tell this is still a very uh, painful wound for you. And that's the thing with grief is it never goes away. And it's kind of like if we gash our arm over time, it might not throb all the time. But if you bump it on something, it's just sort of the hell going to hurt. Yeah. Um, and and something I, again, would like to 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 really emphasize is suicide grief is unique and if you find yourself ruminating or you're thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it you need an outlet for that because it goes from your head to your heart your heart to your head and then your body gets affected and it causes anxiety and it can cause depression it can cause um it can grief can cause things like heart disease. It can cause mm-hmm. cancer. It can cause all kinds of uh, chemical imbalances in your body because of your body's going to go into in fight flight, and it's going to adjust to the stress that's in your body. So I highly, highly, highly would like to stress and support and ask and just implore anyone who's feeling that grief still mm-hmm. and it's affecting in this way to to please if you don't have somebody to talk to please get somebody to talk to a professional if you haven't if you have a professional you haven't brought it up bring it up bring yeah it up. I, absolutely I've I finally have made peace with it yeah but it's you can still tell it's it still, still hurts. hard it still hurts but it was last year I finally made peace with and what it, it, it might still hurt three years from now oh it's always it's gonna it's gonna hurt the day of my wedding and she's not there. It's gonna hurt when she doesn't get to see my child do things, right? Mm-hmm. So like it's it's, but how I decided is how I get to tell her story, yeah, and how I decide to do it, and I get to keep on her legacy. And okay. by yeah, so, anyways, I would like to wrap up this call. I feel like this has been a lot. Uh, we've talked about a lot of matters today that are extremely important and to end the stigma of, I would love to end with a positive thought. I think that's kind of what we need. The mom cave. Is there any positive thoughts that you want to put into the world? Hope. 
hope. I want to say that regardless, everything we've talked about today, whether Mm -hmm. you're grieving, whether you're having suicidal thoughts, whether you've lost a loved one to suicide or, or miscarriage, or um, you're, you're experiencing anything that we talked about today, there's always going to be hope. And please, 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 please reach out and tell somebody that you're feeling this way so that they can help you find a trusted friend, find a counselor, find somebody that, that you can say, I feel this way, call one of the helplines, some of the mental helplines and say, I feel this way, um, get the resources because the resources are there. Um, I, I would love to do a whole podcast on grief and I would love to do a whole podcast on mental health in the creator community as well, because uh, these are two things for, for those of us who are creators um, and those of us who are humans are going to, you know, experience and could use some tools around. So on a positive note, there's hope. I, I want to just encourage you all in that, that no experience is too, makes you too far gone mm-hmm. to, to, you're never going to come back the same, but you can come back a different, uh, better person. So I want to just share that. Well, thank you, Mom Cave. I think that is really good advice. Hope. Hope is exactly what we need right now. It's just hope. Hope for a better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Hope that we will end the stigma towards mental health and hope that the next generation and the generation after that don't have to struggle. And I'm already starting to see it. We're literally here sitting, talking on a podcast to talking about mental health. Yeah. Can you imagine 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, if we continue to have these conversations, it won't, you won't be suffering in silence as much as you maybe were in the past. I hope not. I hope too. I hope not too. But anyways, Mom Cave, I want to say it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, So this is a charity podcast. Um, I had this idea a while ago um, in Canada. Uh, There's Bell Let's Talk Day. Uh, That is actually next two weeks from now. Uh, So five cents if you have a Bell phone. Five cents goes to um, uh, Canada Mental Health. I really love that idea. Not all of my audience is in Canada. So I came up with the idea for every listen between today and March 1st, I will donate five cents to three charities. Uh, Give me one sec. I just got to pull up the charity because it's one in each um, uh, in one in each country. Okay. So I will donate five cents to the Canadian Mental Health Association. Uh, They are very big in Canada. Um, when I was in rehab, um, that was one of the the charities that went to it because I was in child rehab, not adult, but this is where the adult aspect can go for rehab for any form of mental health. Uh, the In the States, it would be the Mental Health Association Inspiring Hope and Healing, the MHA. And in the UK, it's Mental Health UK. So for every listen, I will donate five cents to each charity because me and you can't solve mental health in an afternoon. Um, but if we work together, we'll end the stigma together. So I wanted to make this a, a special podcast that we can all work together as a Sims community and help eliminate mental health to where we can. So the mom cave, I want to thank you so much for coming here today. I remember it was literally after a mission of a podcast, which literally aired this week, by the way. I said I, it. 
I, I literally, I pulled her after and I said, I really want to do this podcast because this is something that I've been really thinking about for a long time. And I'm really happy that we got to sit down and do it today. Me too. Well, um, I usually open the floor for if this is where you want to plug. So mom, can please plug away? Yeah, absolutely. I think in, in terms of mental health, again, I am a trained mental health coach. I do have my own practice. And so if coaching, what we talked about today is something you'd like to explore, please feel free to reach out. You can, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get my link tree together, my coaching link tree together. And I will send that to Stasi to put in below or put up on screen or something. Cause I don't have it off the top of my head right now. I think it's a life moving forward at uh, link tree somewhere. Um, and, and then just for my creative community, you can reach me at on Linktree at the mom cave. Um, so anyways, I'll put all that on there. Uh, the, the other thing that I am hoping to do this year is a, a live coaching sessions on Twitch and possibly I'll be multi-streaming Twitch and Facebook or Facebook and TikTok. I don't know, I haven't decided yet. And there will be a uh, inquiry form that I'll send to Stasi as well. If you have questions, um, you know, if I get enough questions, I'll be able to, to do some of those podcasts and um, lives. So I am doing that. And then, of course, the, the creative stuff I do. Feel free to reach out to me on my, my link tree if you like sappy romance <laughs> in the Sims. I'm all over the place on, on Insta Instagram and YouTube. So I, I, I love that please go check out the links below. Um, the mom cave, you're amazing. Thank you for coming back. Um, I know you've talked about wanting to come back for grief and content. You're more than welcome to come back. We can absolutely schedule something after this call, because I think these are conversations that we need to have as a society to just end one stigma at a time and normalizing sadness and normalizing grief and just normalizing everything that we talked about on this call because we are all human beings yeah. at the end of the day and we all have emotions so the mom cave thank you so much for coming here today uh like i said please go check out the links below uh please give this podcast a listen please share it with everybody share it share it share it i cannot iterate it enough i know these topics make you feel uncomfortable i'm not gonna lie to you i sat here and there were points where i felt uncomfortable but that's the whole point. We shouldn't feel uncomfortable when we're talking about mental health. It should be a welcoming conversation. So I would, I want to work together as a society to end the stigma behind mental health and I will do any possible way to do it. So the mom cave, thank you so much for being here today. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure and I really look forward to chatting with you soon. Likewise. Thank you, Stassi. You are very, very welcome. <laughs>